Digital Gonzo, episode 133, recorded Friday, 24th of May, 2013. Superman, the Christopher Reeve movies. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic strip has thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. Today, at last, his evolution is complete. Brought to life by the awesome technology of film and by an extraordinary cast of stars. Marlon Brando is Jor-El, who gave our world his only son. Gene Hackman is his arch-enemy Lex Luthor, the only man on Earth capable of destroying him. Margot Kidder is Lois Lane, the woman who thinks she knows him as the most ordinary of men. Glenn Ford is Jonathan Kent, the foster father who discovers him as a baby. Jackie Cooper is editor Perry White. And Christopher Reeve is the astonishing new screen presence chosen to portray Clark Kent and the Man of Steel. Until now, his incredible adventures have been beyond the power of any known medium to realize. But now, the greatest creative and technical minds of the motion picture world have gathered to meet the challenge of Superman. He has come of age, our age. Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman is now the movie. These shows have been a long time coming, and the most difficult choice was how many podcasts to devote to them. Batman got... Anybody? How many? Eleven. It was a ridiculous number. Fourteen podcasts covering twelve films, two games, two TV series, one book, my audio drama, and its making of shows. Batman is a significantly more complex and interesting character, however, and I find myself with little to say about Superman's animated shows and films or books. Not because they're bad, just because they don't engage me in the same ways. Definitely not his games, though, as these have all been terrible, and I will not be doing an audio drama of Superman, at least not this year. These four Christopher Reeve films were going to be four podcasts, then three, then two. And now that I've seen them all again and analysed as much as I possibly could, it's going to be one epic show. Next week, we'll be covering the 2006 attempt to reboot the film series, Superman Returns. And then, in preparation for Zack Snyder's new film, we're looking at his 2009 adaptation of Alan Moore's ruminations on the concept of what the Superman does to the world, Watchmen. The week after that, it's Man of Steel. And to round off, my current favourite Superman film, which Snyder, Nolan and Cavill have to beat. The tale of the drunken pariah... Hancock. With me tonight to discuss Superman, Superman 2, Superman 3, and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, uh, are Neil Taylor of Game Burst and Desert Island Gonzo. Hello. And Paul Gibson of Gonzo Planet and Praxis Effect. Hello there. As with the Avengers shows, let's start with a brief character history up to 1978. Superman first appeared 40 years previously in Action Comics No. 1, 1938. That's 75 years ago this year. 
Created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and subject to much allegorical readings on Moses being sent in a basket down the Nile and indeed Jesus being sent to earth to save us by his benevolent father. Most of this symbolism came later as back in the 30s everybody played things straight. Originally only able to jump really high rather than actually fly, Superman was the star of radio in the 1940s and 1960s, cinematic serials in the 40s and 50s, And in 1952, George Reeves famously portrayed him on the television show, The Adventures of Superman. The United States Treasury Department presents The Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Animation fans will, of course, remember the 1940s Fleischer cartoons, which half a century later inspired first the Batman and then the Superman 90s animated series. This means he definitely rivals Batman in terms of pre-major movie screen adaptations. He was always portrayed straight, fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. When people think of caped superheroes, this is the one they go to first. This is the template. It's this archetype that actually restricts the character. Any dark variation on it never lasts, and we always return to the Boy Scout. Killing him in 1992 not only didn't stop him, but returned him to his roots when he resurrected. And with the resultant boost in sales, this in effect killed the power of the Grim Reaper in comics forever. There is something intrinsic to the archetype, though, that the human race finds inherently appealing. Someone strong and selfless swooping in to save the day. On one level, we want to be saved by him, reassured that there is nothing to fear. On the other, we want his abilities for ourselves. We want to fly through the clouds and find ourselves immortal. It's everything else, the reality of what comes with this great power, that his best writers are able to harness to deliver his best stories, all of which are centred around conflict, both within and without. Now, for this show, I have installed a monometer, Every time it sounds like we're being unjustly critical, unjustly being the operative word, and especially if we go over the same negative point more than once, it will start to beep. Hopefully this should keep the show in perspective. Because I'm going to start off by making what is sure to be an unpopular statement. But stop and check to see if it applies to you, and you may be surprised. If you like the first Superman film, you might not like the film itself. Not really. In fact, you probably like three things about it that are so all-encompassing that they have tricked your brain into believing the film is great. First and foremost is John Williams' score. Secondly, Christopher Reeve. And third is how this film impacted on your childhood. Let me elaborate, and you may feel a tinge of truth and familiarity, although, of course, in some cases, I'm dead wrong. So to start with, I'm going to play the title music for the first film. It is one of the most joyful, exhilarating, uplifting, 
recognisable pieces of cinematic scoring history. It makes my spirit soar.
John Williams music tells your brain you're watching Star Wars or Spielberg, it convinces so thoroughly, in fact, that most people blank out the poorly constructed film at the core. The following four movies are just the same score reorchestrated by Ken Thorne, Alexander Courage and John Ottman. So part of your brain starts to rebel and say, hang on, something's not quite right. I've seen or indeed heard this done better before. Christopher Reeve is element two. He made the marvellous decision to take the role deadly seriously. He doesn't break character or mess about at any point throughout all four movies, even the ones that are ridiculous. He is so stoic and serious with those big, blue, intense eyes, that firm jaw and calm demeanour. He believes in this character, and as a result, so do we. He was absolutely the right man for the role. He immortalised this incarnation. In fact, he did so well that nobody noticed that everything else around him, aside from the music, was much, much weaker. In retrospect, the terrible accident and paralysis that happened later and his ceaseless work to further the cause of research into curing certain disabilities also gains his performance here a huge boost of respect. If he had become an abusive drunk or simply faded into obscurity in later life, there is no way these films would still be so beloved. The third aspect is how prevalent these films were in the late 70s and early 80s. They were major cinematic events. They were on telly every Christmas and bank holiday, just like Bond. Much of the series being shot in the UK was a point of pride. Playground games with Superman involved always included the theme tune, the same powers and the law laid down in the films. There was no contemporary Superman animated show until the mid-90s, and the comics weren't in major circulation over here, so this was our Superman. And that engendered a fierce, and in retrospect, probably unwarranted love. But the influence of these films cannot be understated or underestimated. The format of Superman Returns is predicated upon continuing it. Man of Steel is, in effect, a remake of the first two films put together, which means we still have not yet received a cinematic outing that exists independently of this original. Even Zimmer's score has a definite musical relationship with the Planet Krypton theme. However... In a post-Avengers, post-Dark Knight world, aside from the aforementioned score and serious central performance, there is very little to recommend these four films. Even the first one. Even fans agree they literally get worse and worse. The budgets and the focus of the teams who make them get less and less. The first one was released based on the following concept. You'll believe a man can fly. And back in 1978, audiences did. Today, even a toddler can point out the wires, and with thrice-yearly superhero films emerging with better and better scripts, production values, emotion, storytelling, talented casts, stellar performances, and brilliant scores, this series is rendered, at its very best, a little bit feeble and antiquated as a result. At its very worst, tedious, nonsensical, patronising, ludicrously costumed, painfully cheap, and riven with deeply unfunny comedy. These were some of the first steps on the road to bringing comic book heroes to the screen. And, like the Dire Straits video for Money for Nothing in terms of the advancement of CGI, they were instrumental to its evolution. And I am not disputing their importance or their impact in the day, especially the first two. What I will maintain, though, is that they are poorly constructed and dull and no longer relevant by today's standards. Today's standards, which is, of course, what the Digital Gonzo show is concerned with, how the subject of nostalgia stands up to close scrutiny and deconstruction. And I think what's 
really fired me up is that at the very end of the Donner Cut commentary, Richard Donner said, let's not overanalyze it too much when trying to gloss over something that doesn't make any sense. Well, you know what? It's gonzo. Let's overanalyze it too much. <laughs> okay, I will maintain that, um, as Donner says, this is a three-act film. They're not three equal acts, but you've got the planet Krypton, which is almost Shakespearean in its style, and then you've got the Norman Rockwell-style Kent Farm section and Smallville, and then it cuts to uh, Metropolis, and it's this third act that takes up well over half the movie that I think the whole film falls apart in. So should yeah. we should we tackle it sort of like in order? We'll, we'll start with sort of the stuff at the beginning, and then we'll work through. And then we've got to do Superman 2, and then 3 and 4. So let's <laughs> not dwell too much. So we've done John Williams' score and the uh, the intro sequence, which, as I said, it, that, that, that's the best part of the movie. I mean, you could, you could feasibly say the film actually gets worse and worse every second that elapses. But then again, actually, I will amend that. The end, with the turning back time, I really like, even though... Uh, it's I, I will argue that being a really terrible ending. It's It's probably terrible in terms of what it actually is, but in terms of showing the conflict of the character, it's actually a really good move. But we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get there. Krypton and Marlon Brando as Durell. If he remains here with us, he will die as surely as we will. But why Earth, Durell? They're primitives, thousands of years behind us. He will need that advantage to survive. Their atmosphere will will sustain him. their gravity. He will look like one of them. He won't be one of them. No. His dense molecular structure will make him strong. He'll be odd. Different. He'll be fast. Virtually invulnerable. Isolated. Alone. He will not be alone. He will never be alone. Okay. Now, Marlon Brando... He's Marlon Brando. He's Marlon Brando. (laughs) At least he's not as bad as the island of Dr. Monroe, Marlon Brando. Monroe. But yeah, no, he's he's not that bad. And actually, no, he doesn't mumble as much as I I thought. He's he's pretty good at enunciating. But apparently when he uh, first came on set, and he was just testing the crew to see what they'd do if he said, I kind of thought I uh, should maybe play Joel like a, a bagel. (laughs) <laughs> we don't know uh, what aliens are like. Maybe they emit uh, electronic wine, and uh, and uh, he was basically doing it, do it to fuck with them. That well, sounds like Brando. Yeah, just did, uh, see how they would handle him. As like, uh, Mr. Brando, we're making this straight, okay? I did read that he refused to learn any of the script. Oh yeah, no, he had to have cue <laughs> cards. Yep. Like, uh, at one point, reading off the baby's nappy. Oh, oh, it gets worse. I think for the the film I just mispronounced, uh, he had to have an earpiece, but someone literally reading the script to him. In the lines. And it gets better. Apparently at one point, it changed over to a local sports broadcast, and he started (laughs) repeating what the commentator said. Uh, Astonishingly, his delivery is really good. 
His, mm. I, re- I really like Jarrell in this, and, and the fact that he's carried over all the way to Superman Returns, and when he's brought back for the Donner Cut, uh, which of course you guys haven't seen, but I will tell you right now, is significantly improved for him there. I've never really been a major fan of Marlon Brando, but he's got enough gravitas to elevate this early uh, section of the movie. I love the whole, you know, my son, you will travel far stuff. I, I, he's, you know, the, all the Krypton stuff. He, he's good here, he, but he's not Godfather good. No, Christ, though. <laughs> Although, interestingly, there is that link. Mario Puzo wrote the yeah. uh, original draft of the screenplay. Everyone goes, oh, you know, oh, Mario Puzo uh, wrote the uh, script to Superman. No, no, no. He wrote the first draft of the script to Superman. If you do a little bit, a bit of digging, uh, it was Mario Puzo and then David Newman, Leslie Newman, and Robert Benton got in there and, and, and we did it. And the, the whole thing was like 550 pages long. So they really pared it down. And it was it had gone mental at some point. So yeah. Hence why I don't think you've mentioned it, but these Superman 1 and 2 isn't Superman 1 and 2. It's just Superman because it was filmed back to back. Yeah, Superman 1 and 2 is just an enormous epic, which is why, like I said, Man of Steel appears to be the same story, just pared down into one film. Fingers crossed. Okay, the Krypton stuff happens. Uh, it's 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 miserably dated. This stuff. It's it's got this sort of um, shiny white suits. Shiny white, which was like you know, there's a lot of experimental stuff back in those days. The, that that bit with the guy standing there with the sort of weird medieval armor, and there's that yeah. <laughs> sort of the, the double hula hoop thing, which yeah. was like super space age back at the time. Yeah, but all the window dressing stuff of... Uh, That's the other thing. Why would anybody actually want to live there? I, I don't know. <laughs> when, uh, um, I mean, it's home for them, but it's a hellhole. It looks like it would give you a headache within moments. When uh, General Zod gets to Earth, he goes, a strange place. It points at the water. Like, they don't have water on Krypton. How the hell can Superman even cope? Well, anyway. luckily, he never had to put up with it, so he's fine. Yeah, but his biology should surely uh, require an environment without water, like those aliens in Signs. Mm, good point. It just likes crystals and that. Moving on from Krypton, the, again, the, the um, I, I like the themes here, and I like uh, some of the the acting, and um, I like the fact that they take it very seriously, although the uh, the, the effects are dated like crazy. Then uh, Kal-El gets sent off in that ship so yeah smallville the kent farm again this this stuff is um i i really hate the him running alongside the the train effect it looks terrible by today's standards it does look terrible but this was the part of the film that i really loved which was his sort of him growing up and it was that sense of that sense of he was a teenager with these powers and he felt like a teenager with those powers he wasn't particularly showing off but he was using them for fun like he would if you were a teenager yes that effect doesn't look good but it also sets up in a visual thing Faster than a speeding train. More powerful than a locomotive. Oh yeah, well, yeah you can almost ask for a TV show that entirely details this, uh, these teenage years. No, no, <laughs> sorry, no. I, you fell into that one. Um, ten years. No. Ten years. When he grows up and becomes Superman, he's way too calm about everything. This is the interesting time in his life when he's conflicted about everything and he doesn't know who he is. He's, it's that classic storyline of who am I. Hmm. Which so really works well with Superman. Yeah, it does. And um, you know, it's got this kind of a 50s arcana thing, which at the time when it was done in the, in the 70s wasn't actually that far away. Like the standard year count for nostalgia like 20 years past, 20 years ago. So yeah. that would have been nostalgic for them. Yeah. And uh, and then Paul, um, Jonathan Kent dies just after giving him his, his with great power comes great responsibility line. 
Now, when we do these Spider-Man shows, I'm going to say that Spider-Man 1 is really similar in thematic storyline to Superman 1. And Spider-Man 2 is really similar in in other ways to Superman 2 in terms of him uh, rejecting or indeed losing his powers. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, this is your, your, your classic sort of the, the legend, the origin story of this first one. So basically, at this point, before he goes to the Fortress of Solitude, and actually during the Fortress of Solitude, the film's actually still running strong. And, you know, I think we all watch this as kids, and, and uh, when you're a kid, you don't have that ability to analyse a film and work out when it is broken beyond repair. And I never really worked out until I was watching it very recently that there were pretty severe problems. There were things that bugged me, but I hadn't really worked it out. So let's let's carry on moving. Um, the Fortress of Solitude thing, again, kind of haunting visuals uh, to that and the whole the crystal thing. I never got, when I was a kid, why this green kryptonite from his ship didn't hurt him in any way. It's, of course, it wasn't irradiated when Krypton blew up. It was with him all the time. Mm. So uh, I think it actually confused things with it being green. Because yeah. everyone knows that the green crystal hurts Superman. So if it had been, say, red or yellow, or because I know there's red kryptonite, but like, just to make it somehow different or blue from the green stuff, which later on hurts him. Dude, pick a colour and there's kryptonite. Yeah, yeah, including pink. Then you know you've got the uh, Fortress of Solitude stuff, and then the welcome return of uh, uh, Brando as Jarrell, and uh, <clears throat> it seems like he spends ten years learning about Krypton. But not... I mean, that's ten years away of real time for him. Becoming mm. totally socially inactive. So yeah. when he gets to Metropolis, that Clark thing shouldn't be an act at all. That, that should, should be, be him, him not knowing how to deal with people. They, they play it that Clark is someone that Kal-El is playing. Yes. That always bugged me. Yeah. Even from a young age, that seemed to make no sense. But, meh. I kind of I know that um, Bruce calls him Clark, but I kind of feel obliged to call Superman Kal El because that's who he really is at the core of this. Superman is a costume he wears and the hero he represents to humanity. Clark is the disguise he wears to hide that costume from the world. But deep down underneath that, you've got Kal El, and we almost never get to see Kal El. Not really. There are a few times when he talks to his uh, his father uh, in the Fortress of Solitude after this point that we really get to see Kal-El, but it's rare. And, yeah, like I said about Christopher Reeve, I can't fault his performance. For the time, for who he was, the fact that he was a complete unknown, he owns this role uh, to the point where it's really difficult to see anyone else as Superman right now. And he also sort of created the whole sort of hunching up, shrinking down to make himself... Mm. appear physically different from yeah. Superman. When you see, I think it is in the first one where he's at Lois's place where he actually, there's the moment where he straightens up as Clark and takes yeah. his glasses off and you see, and it's him being the Superman character, but you know, he changes and hunkers back down and yeah. tries to be smaller. It's something that Kevin Conroy does with his voice all the time. He, you know, he softens up for Bruce and he hardens up for Batman. It's, uh, <clears throat> in the Donner Cut, there's actually a really good moment of uh, Superman 2 where Lois shoots Clark with a revolver. Forgot about that. <laughs> he, he goes from protesting that he's he's terrified to suddenly realizing the game's up, and he straightens up, and there's this sort of sort of uh, moment, and it's like this physical transformation that should have been in the original film. Instead, in the Lester cut, it's 
this horrible pink bear monstrosity moment. But uh, but yeah, there's this uh, a definite exaggerated hunched over uh, ineptitude that he um, sums up in the Clark character. Mm. Yeah, I can sort of see that because to be fair, I know. I'm going to mention a series that you either love or hate. It wasn't until another TV series came along where Clark became the character and not Superman. Mm. Uh, Smallville? New Adventures. New, oh, Lois and Clark. Yeah, I hate calling it that. I like calling it New Adventures of Superman. It was New Adventures of Superman over here for the first couple of seasons. Ah, that's why I got confused, because I was like, I'm sure it was called the New Adventures of Superman. Uh, Now on DVD, I think it's Lois and Clark, because I have the first two seasons. But it wasn't until that that sort of Dean Cain made Clark Kent the character and Superman the alter ego. I kind of like the fact that that existed. Superman for chicks. What are you saying? I own that series. I- I'm I'm saying that there might be a little estrogen in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not for guys, though, surely. I, I only watched it's a bit Superman. of it. But I, was like... I used to watch that with my family. That was just... I yeah, really I enjoyed it. It doesn't, I will be honest, it doesn't hold up well now. But Terry Hatch is a pretty good Lois. I've yet to find a really good Lois, to be fair. She was more believable as a journalist than this one. Margot. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Actually, let's talk about Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. There were multiple actresses who tried out for the role, and one of them I just found out about while watching the extras the other day, uh, and it drove me nuts, because to imagine a world where this lady had played Lois instead... Stockard Channing. That would have been awesome, but not the way the character's written. No, not the way. Basically, the the girl had to be sort of in love with Superman, but very dismissive of Clark. But Stockard Channing would be very brassy pretty much either way. You you know something, Lois? Well, you know, uh, in in spite of the the unreality of of all all this, you know, posing as newlyweds for the sake of a newspaper story, Uh well, you know, in in spite of myself, actually, I'm uh, I'm kind of starting to feel like one in a way. A newlywed? Uh You? I don't see why that should be so strange. Oh, oh, I'm I'm really sorry, Clark, really. I'm, I'm sure there have been dozens of girls who... Well, a couple, anyway. Okay, go ahead, say it. What? You're not satisfied being here with me. Oh. Yeah, I know. You, in some way, I don't seem to shape up in your eyes. Well, darn it, I don't have anything to apologize for, Lois. You're right. I'm a good reporter. I'm a very good reporter. And I'm an even better friend to you if you'd let me. Stand up, Clark. Uh, what? Come here. Come on. Come on. That's it. Come on. What a... Now look at yourself. You see that? Yes. It's a handsome, aggressive, dynamite guy who can do anything he wants to do. <laughs> it's you that's standing in your way, Clark, not me. Oh, yeah? How? Stock or Channing would probably play it as Lois Lane should be. Yeah. Not as she's played here. Mm. And I well, don't well, want I to play... pretty the... much load the script and the, the, the way that they've made everybody so kooky. Well, not kooky, just that she is a terrible journalist. She doesn't know how to spell. Yeah. She can't type. Yeah. She doesn't know how to dress either. Yeah. She dresses like an old lady. It's it's like in Superman, the start of Superman 2 where she gets sent to, to Paris. And she's yeah. in a dress and she's trying to sneak into the Eiffel Tower in a dress. And then she like hitches underneath an elevator. Well, okay. Let's let's just. I can hear the monometer going off. <laughs> let's just um, focus just for ten seconds. This is me here. Um, before I sort of start attacking Margot Kidder, in the Donner cut of Superman Two, which again, uh, maddeningly, you have guys haven't got to see because it's not. I have seen it before. Search. 
she does the best acting in the series and nobody got to see it. As in that her best annoying. acting of the series. Uh, it's, it's not brilliant, but there are times when she's crying and heartbroken, but she holds it in. As opposed to just histrionics. You know, mm. she's heartbroken, but she doesn't talk about it. She's just, you know, she does it with looks. And it's like a completely different actress is doing it. And I really hats off to her for that stuff. And she finally got into it. The first film is really not her best. And then she's thrown off completely by the Lester cut of the second one. She's hardly in the third one. And in the fourth one, I don't even no one knew what was going on. So basically the only time for Lois to shine is in deleted footage. And that's terrible. Yeah. Like I said, I don't want to blame the actress too much because I don't think the script is doing her right. a single favour. Yeah. Uh, we could be way too harsh on her and, and let's not, but... Um, I've got down here Perry White as and Jimmy Olsen, played by Jackie Cooper and Mark McClure. Who were they? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've seen fucking five Superman films. I still don't know who Perry White is. What's his defining characteristics? How is he in any way comparable to J.J.? And I just, yeah. people go, like, well, they're apples and oranges. Well, I don't know. You know, over the years, they could maybe have inserted a bit more character into Perry White to make him... You know, uh, very significantly. You may want to go watch Lois and Clark then, because oh, right. at least he gets much more. Him and Jimmy get much more screen time and much more development. That's that's a lot of fun. Aside from Jimmy, Jimmy sounding like he's from Smallville as well. I'm going, gee whiz, Lois. Um, what is what is Jimmy's defining characteristics? He's there. He has a. No, camera. I mean just in general in the comics as well. If you want. He's well, the a... newsboy legion. <laughs> I, well, you had to bring that up. Um, I think he's just meant to sort of be this young, naive character that just, you know, just is ex- exists to just always see the best in people. So he always sees yeah. the best in Superman and, and the best in everybody. So I think that's sort of his role. But he's like I a think... hapless, adoring puppy. Until they start messing with him in Countdown, and I don't want to talk about that ever. I did read um, J. Michael Straczynski's Earth One the other day, which is actually not dissimilar in theme to Man of Steel, and uh, they, he finally characterised Perry White for me in a way that I could, I could get with, which is that he has an adherence to the truth. This story is the chance of a lifetime for the planet. Everything else we've got to go with it is 100% legit and vetted. If a single word of what you write up is bogus, if you make up any of it, I will eat you alive. Are we absolutely crystal clear on that? And it's like, right, okay, I get this now. I get who Perry White is. But that's never put across in the films. He's just, again, those two characters are just sort of there. They're like, oh, they're from the comic books, but we better include them, so they're sort of yeah. there. J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson is incendiary to watch in Spider-Man. You wait for him to be on screen. Perry White, you wait for him to be off screen. Now, it's actually, the film isn't broken until we meet Otis. You know, because Superman does that. that score kicks him. Yeah, Superman does that neat little bullet catch uh, from the the mugging, which I kind of like. And then he sort of looks at the camera and goes, ah, bullet. Little breaking of the fourth wall there. And then it goes, boom, 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 boom. I'm thinking, where are the Ewoks? <laughs> <sighs> All rolled into one character. Right. Now is when the film is broken. Now is when it is fucked beyond recognition. Otis 
is a clown. He is not funny. Ergo, he is useless. He is dead weight. Gene Hackman surrounds himself with clowns that he hires. He's not even Lex Luthor. He's not even vaguely Lex Luthor. He didn't want to shave his moustache, and he had to be tricked into shaving it. He didn't want to be bald, so they let him keep his hair. He had no interest in being the Lex Luthor character. The Luthor character is not in anywhere like the character in either the comics, as I gather it, or the animated series, as I have watched again and again, played with brilliance by Clancy Brown and various others. We have to be kind of careful with comparisons to the comics. Oh, yeah. Because these films are pre-crisis. Oh, true, actually, yeah. And this crisis, it's... Uh... 84. Right. Okay, well, you know what, then? Um, ig- ignore the comics. Lex Luthor in these films is a shit villain. Yes. He's because... Boring it's... and stupid and pretentious. He's meant to be the greatest criminal mind the world has ever seen, yet I surround myself with idiots. Oops. He even says that. Yeah. Yeah. Tess Mocker, I get, because it's, oh, look, pretty bird. She's his floozy. Yeah. Also, why do you introduce yourself to everybody as the greatest criminal mastermind the world has ever seen? In Superman 4, he can't pronounce the word nuclear. Now, I know our own Josh Garrett, he can't do that either, but Josh never claims to be the greatest genius in the world, and Josh doesn't have someone saying, Gene, Gene, you pronounced that wrong, at any point. And when one of the main characters in your film is called Nuclear Man, you're in trouble. Yeah, there's also a really, and this is in Superman 2, unhealthy vein of domestic violence gags running throughout. Miss Tessmacher says, I know I'm going to get a sock in the mouth for this, and then she... Um, asks him a question. Then when they get to the Fortress of Solitude, she says something's funny, and he says, you know what's funny? Someone trying to smile with a mouth with no teeth. And then in a deleted scene, he says, go south. And she goes south and points in a different direction. And he says, mouthful of mink, and sort of holds up his minky-covered fist. And it's like, would you stop implying you are going to punch this poor, big-titted girl's teeth out? This is reprehensible filmmaking. You just gotta stop before I blow my top. But one of these days... One of these days... Pow! Right in the kisser! One of these days... One of these days... Pow! Didn't even get to the comedy pimp yet. Oh, oh man, that is a nice suit! Hey, Jim! Whoa. Excuse me. That's a bad outfit! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, so yeah, Gene Hackman and as Luther, every moment these guys are on screen is ridiculous, not in a funny way, but in a kind of like, uh, they actually thought that this was worthwhile doing in the film. The Salkins, the producers, wanted everything to be camp and silly. Richard Donner said no, he wanted it to be serious. At what point was this in keeping with that decision to be serious? I think he lost a battle somewhere, and I think that's why it is the way it is. It's so awful! Especially now. Let's talk about tonal shift between the two. Because that's what it is. It's a complete tonal shift between the stoic, serious Superman and this bumbling, flipping moron that's calling himself Lex Luthor. Yeah. The more complex, serious, and straight-out better Lex Luthor came about post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, which, for folks who haven't heard of it before, was a major retconning of all of the vastly confusing and often contradictory storylines that DC had running. Uh, it took place in the early 80s, and everything after that was kind of streamlined down into this one universe. It was actually John Byrne, who had also worked on the Uncanny X-Men, who helped recreate the Lex Luthor that we know today. 
there have been various spillings over into Elseworlds since then, but it did get them a chance to redefine the characters. But that hadn't happened yet, so this was based on a much sloppier comic Lex. Something of a mad scientist. But still, actual source material doesn't matter. They had every opportunity to give his character weight, and they didn't. Right, uh, the creative consultant, Tom uh, Mankiewicz, actually mentioned regarding uh, Superman 4, Quest for Peace. Has Christopher Reeve had come to him to ask him, how do I do a film where Superman tries to get rid of all the nuclear weapons in the world? And he said something along the lines of, Superman cannot solve a problem which is real. Never go into famine. Never go into floods that Superman could actually fix. Mm. Never have Superman really fail. In other words, keep it light, keep it fantastical. That is a brilliant way of making sure you never treat the audience like adults. You always treat it like a Saturday morning cartoon. That is not serious. That is the opposite of serious. That is a circus. To be fair, at this point, it will have been aimed at kids. Yeah. They kind of made no bones about the fact that this was supposed to be for kids, and the adults would enjoy it too, and you know, there were great effects back in the day. And obviously everyone who was a kid then, and still loves it now, it had a huge effect on Mm, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of people though I guarantee listening to this right now haven't seen it in years and are now a little bit afraid to they should be they really <laughs> should be but I recommend going back and seeing it because ultimately those rose tinted glasses have got to come off you know what it allows us to appreciate what we have now if we can put in perspective the things we had then if you watch a film that was like Ghostbusters is still great now because of the script and because they, they focus and they keep it tight the whole way through, it allows you to sort of see, actually, the ones which are all slapdashing all over the place, I can let them go. Yeah, you, you sort of have to appreciate this film for being the original building blocks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. things. Yeah. But really, when you look back at this film, there's a lot of things that don't make sense. The pacing, for example, is completely all over the place. Yeah. Characters are pretty much undeveloped. There's no character growth. You could say without these films there wouldn't be a Batman, but ultimately you're you're operating on the assumption that no one will ever make films about superheroes without a film about superheroes. It's going to happen at some point. It is inevitable as soon as the effects become capable of handling. As as Paul pointed out, this is pre-crisis, and this is pre-the comic book boom of the 80s where comic books really took off again. Mm. So it was a lot of the stuff in the 80s really solidified comic books more... And they say this because that was the era of like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. Some might say this film definitely kickstarted that as well, and an interesting oh, yeah. comic books in well, general. Yeah, superhero. Watch, Watchmen and Dark Knight were what eighty six, eighty seven. Yeah. So about the time of Superman four. Yeah, Ooh. and Supergirl. But just oh, from, obviously oh, they oh. they kickstarted the Burton Batman, which was again an inevitability as soon as people were interested in the character. But it really, it just comes down to effects. As soon as the effects can meet the needs of the comic, they'll get made. Iron Man did not happen until 2008, because any time before then, it would have been like, well, Robocop. Yeah. Yeah, also, like, Green Lantern can fall into that category. Yes, the film is terrible, and I love the character, but you have to do that now-ish, because of the, the fantastical nature of the Green Lantern abilities. In all seriousness, Green Lantern's not a million miles away from these early Superman films in terms of the fact that it's a total mess, but, you know, it's visually stunning. There was potential there. Yeah. That's the problem. There was potential and it was wasted. But there was nothing like this back in 78 apart from Star Trek. 
actually yeah apart from Star Wars and to a lesser degree Star Trek a year later so it's it was we were just getting into that major sci-fi uh, boom of the 80s and uh, the, the big comic book boom wasn't going to happen for another 22 years we were, we were only just into summer blockbuster territory at this point yeah yeah early early baby steps and I understand obviously back in the day this it doesn't matter that it was a mess it was the only um, superhero stuff you were going to get and, and to a degree they took it seriously it's just the stuff that they didn't take seriously but now we got bags of it you can't move for superhero films and it drops to the bottom of the pile and actually you know what? let's do stuff that doesn't make sense in Superman 1 before we go to the turning back time one why doesn't Superman break Lois when he catches her now I did uh, I watched um, The Science of Superman and uh, they actually worked out that when Superman jumps up from the ground to catch Lois when she's falling from the helicopter he's going at something like 1200 miles an hour when he hits her it's going to be worse than if she just fell onto the pavement at the speed she was going it's Superman and he can control how much power he uses that's the thing his immense powers are not the remarkable thing about him it's that there is such an enormous range of force that is available to him and he always picks the exact correct point on the scale so that he doesn't absolutely splatter the people and things he comes up against because we've already seen he has got astonishing power and one of those factors he is a pretty much a genius yeah he has super intelligence although apparently even though his super level intelligence allows him to travel at at 700 miles per hour or even light speed and still react in time his brain's still not as good as Batman a regular bloke (laughs) <laughs> we'll get into that later. Yeah. Um, question two. Why does Superman tell Lois, and thus the world, that he can't see through lead? Because... I said and this what planet he's from, and all the rest of it. Does he tell her about the Fortress of Solitude? Because that's a question I've got later on. don't think so. No. That's Not because, <coughs> because Superman and everybody else in this entire world are idiots. They're just naive. No, I just like to think they're idiots. I like to believe this is a parallel world where everyone's a moron. Sorry, that's the moaning alarm. (laughs) Don't care, they deserve that one. How does Luther discover that Kryptonite weakens Superman? He says it's deductive reasoning, but... That's some deductive reasoning. That is some. I mean, like, he's absolutely right, but it happens to be the only substance that does... It's it's such it's such a contrivance the way he comes across it. There's no way for him to find it out organically for that. There's no logical steps. It is pure plot convenience. Yeah, he's like, hmm, I'm thinking about this. His planet, Krypton, which I now know about thanks to the paper. And for some reason we know all about with our modern day astrology. <sighs> yeah. Um, Astron- astronomy. Astronomy, sorry. Astrology is... Uh, You're the one. <laughs> yeah. Why is Superman such a sap? See the question about the entire world being moronic. And when Superman turns back time, and this'll box you, how come there aren't two of him? Mm-hmm. Because, here's the thing. Oh no. Goes to catch, I oh, know, I love it when I can do this, I'm messed with your brain. He goes to catch Rocket A, right? The one that uh, was going towards Hackensack, New Jersey. And he sends it into space. But the one that went towards the San Andreas Fault hits while he's in space. He goes down, he sorts all of the uh, aftermath out, he saves pretty much everyone apart from Lois. 
And then, when he goes round the world, turns it backwards, and then forwards again, it puts him back to the same point in time he was before, only he can now be in two places at once. And he goes for Rocket B and sends that into space. However, the Superman who got rid of Rocket A is still on the planet. That means that this planet now has two Supermans. Time has a way of healing itself, and therefore it is not a paradox, and this is the one I choose to believe. Otherwise, my brain will melt. Yeah, I also choose to believe that it's the him going backwards that moves, not him turning the Earth backwards, which I've also heard. <laughs> that would just cure planetary disasters. Exactly. <laughs> Planetary-wide disasters, even. In all seriousness, he can actually use this technique as many times as he wants to create himself an army of identical supermen. Oh, God. The moment when Lois dies, and it's actually really quite upsetting, especially for a kid's film. She's really And it's a horrible death! It's really claustrophobic, yeah. yeah. And she properly does die. And then he sort of pulls her out of the car and uh, goes to sort of kiss her, and then it goes... As though, oh, he's bringing her back to life with his kiss. No, she's dead. And then it slowly pulls out, and it's quiet, and out, and it's quiet, and out and it's quiet, and he's failed. That is a brilliant moment. Mm. And then he sort of looks up and, bless his heart, Christopher Reeves' performance at this point, he's so powerful. And then charges into the air. I will not take this. He has been presented with you save everybody else and be the man for the world that you're supposed to be, the mantle which you have chosen, and you let die the woman that you love. Or you save the woman you love and let everybody else go to hell. And he hates the fact that he had to make that choice and he made it and she died as a result of it. And so he decides he refuses to accept that. And like Orpheus going back into Hades to get Eurydice, he breaks the rules, goes round the world over and over again, defies both his fathers, because you can actually hear Jonathan Kent there talking as well, to change things. That's a brilliant ending. It does, however, mean that he has become a moral authority above reproach and is not answerable to his actions. One thing we missed out was the um, uh, interview and flight sequence where he takes her flying. Um, it, it's really drippy by today's standards. Yeah. It's very saccharine. Yeah, and her little poem as well. I mean, it's it's sweet, but it's we have Iron Man now. <laughs> Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is that you do to me? I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. 
I am like a kid out of school holding hands with a god I'm a fool will you look at me quivering like a little girl shivering you can see right through me can you read my mind Can you picture the things I'm thinking of? Wondering why you are all the wonderful things you are. You can fly. You belong in the sky. You and I could belong to each other. You need a friend. I'm the one to fly to. If you need to be loved, here I am. Read my mind. section near the end for the abuse of Superman's powers, but this one I will mention because it's very significant in Superman 1. Um, when he flies with her, I know it's symbolic and figurative, but they sort of, you know, she holds, sort of holds out her hand, and he's sort of holding her by one hand. That's that, that's not how physics works. Again, uh, this is uh, Superman. Again, this is Superman. Physics goes out the window, but it's not even how the internal physics of Superman works. If he held her by one hand, she'd be hanging down, screaming. <laughs> Going back to something I said earlier on about my notes for Superman 3. Mm. One of my notes is, all capital letters, that's not how physics works. <laughs> you could pretty much could give that the subtitle of all of the films. Superman, that's not how physics works. Also Spider-Man. Mm. Yeah. Web shooters. There's a, yeah, th- there has to off. be a certain degree of suspension of disbelief. Yeah, <laughs> There are very few superheroes you can actually believe. Maybe the Nolan Batman. Maybe Tony Stark. Oh, and the worst acting award in this film, maybe the worst acting award for any film ever in the history of time, is the pilot for Air Force One. Here he is with line delivery that even Ed Wood would say, Nah, I'm I'm just not believing that you're in this situation. Accompany this with the rolling-eyed face of a man trying to convince a kid that the Easter Bunny exists. What the hell happened? We got our engine back? What the hell's going on out there? Fly. Don't look. Just fly. We got something. I ain't saying what it is. Just trust me. The Salkins, Alexander and Ilya, came by the license to produce a Superman movie, and for the longest time, it was just about the event itself. Get stars, they thought, and people will flock to your movie. All the rest of the stuff is minutiae. To this end, actors as diverse as Robert Redford, Paul Newman, and even boxer Muhammad Ali were considered for the role of Superman. Now, I'd actually really have liked to see Ali as Superman. I think that would have been awesome. I wonder if the closest you're going to get is Hancock. Mm. 
Francis Ford Coppola, William Friedkin, Richard Lester, Peter Yates, John Gerlimin, Ronald Neem, and Sam Peckinpah were in negotiations to direct. Peckinpah dropped out when he produced a gun during the meeting with Ilya. George Lucas turned down the offer because of his commitment to... Empire Strikes Back? I think it was Star Wars at this point, because this was oh. like uh, 75, 76. Ah, uh, yeah, it would have been, yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah. I would love to have seen a freaking Superman. I would have loved to have seen a Spielberg Superman. Although, the idea of a Sam Peckinpah one would be kind of awesome too. In early 75, Brando signed on as Jarrell with a salary of $3.7 million and 11.75% of the box office gross profits. Imagine that today. Imagine any actor. Like, imagine if Robert Downey Jr. said, yeah, I'll be in Avengers, but you've got to give me 11.75% of the total box office. Which he may be doing. Well, he got a decent deal in the first place. I think he got like 500 million for the uh, for Avengers, yeah. So, yeah, Brando got a total of 19 million. He horrified Salkin by proposing in their first meeting that Jarrell appear as a suitcase or a green bagel with... No, sorry, it's a green suitcase or a bagel with Brando's voice. They've written it wrong on Wikipedia. But And it wasn't Brando's voice. He said he wanted it to emit an electric sound. But Donnie used flattery to persuade the actor to portray Jarrell as himself. Brando hoped to use some of the salary for a proposed 13-part Roots-style miniseries on Native Americans in the United States, but instead spent the whole thing on pies. Brando had, in his contract, to complete all of his scenes in 12 days. 12 days for $19 million. Nice work. And he couldn't get it. to learn his own line. Sir, you are overpaid. Well, this is the, the Nicholson deal before the, yeah. well, the, the proto yeah, but version. Nicholson put effort into his, his <laughs> well, performance. True. Did he? I thought he just turned well, up and did himself. Nicholson. Did himself, yeah. You know, te- yeah. Technically, he put what would appear to be effort in. He's just having fun. Fellow Oscar winner Gene Hackman was cast as Lex Luthor days later. The filmmakers made it a priority to shoot all of Brando and Hackman's footage first because they would be committed to other films immediately. Though the Salkins felt that Puzo had written a solid story for the two-part film, they deemed his scripts too long and so hired Robert Benson and David Newman to rewrite work. Benson became too busy directing The Late Show and David's wife Leslie was brought in to help her husband finish writing duties. George MacDonald Fraser was later hired to do some work on the script. He says he did little. Do you know what I mean about this? The whole production of this was ridiculously protracted. The script was submitted in July 76 and carried a camp tone, including a cameo appearance by Telly Savalas as Kojak. The script. Okay, that would have been kind of cool. Kind of, but it would have been like, who loves it? I, I, I actually don't think it would have not fit with, especially if he'd interacted in some way with Lex Luthor, because he actually, Telly Savalas would have made a great Lex Luthor. You know, Actually, yes, he would have felt in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Bacteriological warfare, with a difference. Our great breakthrough since last summer has been the confection of a certain Vitus Omega. Infertility. Total infertility in plants and animals. Not just disease in a few words, Mr. Bond, or the loss of a single crop, but the destruction of a whole strain forever throughout an entire continent. If my demands are not met... I shall proceed with a systematic extinction of whole species of cereals and livestock all over the world. And how many hundred millions do you want for your services this time, Blofeld? This time? <laughs> this time the price is of another kind. You'll be even more amused when you know what. I will keep you here as my guest. You'll be very useful in helping to convince the authorities that I mean what I say. 
and I'll do what I claim. The scripts for Superman 1 and Superman 2 were now at over 400 pages combined. Pre-production started in Rome with sets starting construction and flying tests being unsuccessfully experimented. In Italy, producer Ilya Salkin remembered, We lost about $2 million just on flying tests. Brando found out he couldn't film in Italy because of a warrant out for his arrest, a sexual obscenity charge from Last Tango in Paris. But I've seen that film, it is. Production moved to England in late 1976, but Hamilton could not join because he was a tax exile. (sighs) Mark Robinson was strongly considered in talks to direct, but after seeing The Omen, the producers hired Richard Donner. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait a minute. They hired Richard Donner after watching The Omen? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of Superman film we want. (laughs) He's the kind of, you know, the, the kind of camp guy we want, The Omen. Donna had previously been planning to do Damien Omen 2 when he was hired in January 77 for $1 million, one-nineteenth of Brando's fee, I might add, to direct Superman's 1 and 2. Donna felt it was best to start from scratch. You know what? I know Brando's a big name, but you could have spent that money better. Yes, you could. If they had prepared a picture for a year and not one bit was useful to me, Donna was dissatisfied with the campy script and brought in Tom Mankiewicz to perform a rewrite. According to Mankiewicz, not a word from the Puzo script was used. So when everyone says, oh, the Mario Puzo, he wrote Superman, actually, he really didn't. It was 19 million for Brando, yeah? Yeah. The film only cost 55 million, all told. That is a total waste of money. I know yeah. people will go and come and see it because you've got a star in it, but that, there's other things you can do for $19 million. It's no secret that the relationship between Richard Donner and Alexander and Ilya Salkind is one of the most infamously bitter in Hollywood. Donner was set to direct Superman 1 and 2 back-to-back, but gradually intensifying meddling from the producers, both the Salkins and Pierre Spengler, put immense pressure for creative control on him. He wanted it serious, they wanted it camp. Eventually, the Salkins brought in Richard Lester, who had directed the successful Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers movies, to ostensibly keep an eye on Donna. Lester then replaced... This drove Richard Donna crazy, by the way. Imagine having another director walking around and like, no, no, just, just, uh, you know, just here, just in case. Lester replaced Donna after the first film launched and was an immense success. I think Tom Mankiewicz concluded that if the first film hadn't actually been a success, they'd have kept Richard Donna on to get him to finish because it would have saved money. Uh, Lester then shot new footage to complete the required amounts to both string a story together with what they had and to fulfill the percentage required for a directing credit. So, picture the scene. Something like 60% of Superman 2 is already in the can. Lester comes in to do the other 40% and then just a little bit extra as well. Marlon Brando was cut out entirely to save having to pay him anything. Gene Hackman walked and never shot a scene with Richard Lester. Margot Kidder was also deeply unhappy with Donna's treatment, and it shows in her performance. I actually admire Margot Kidder for her um, reaction on this one. She basically did a Megan Fox. She called the Salkins a bunch of money-grubbing bastards and entirely unprofessional, and so they pretty much wrote her out of Superman 3 as a result. It's also why... Lex isn't in 3. Yeah, yeah. Because Hackman did the same thing. Hackman was like, sod this. The villain in Superman 3 is basically Lex by any other name. He even has a floozy and a moron. Superman 2 reached cult status quickly with fan edits featuring expanded early footage from TV versions, and they circulated and were quickly stomped by Warner. And then 26 years later, Richard Donner was asked back on the project and given access to all of his old footage, helping Michael Foe 
edit together something that was far closer to his original planned version. Only 20% of the runtime in the Richard Donner Cup was shot by Richard Lester, and there were many significant alterations to the tone. Brando is restored, talking with Reeve, something all the more poignant since in 2004, two years previously, both actors had died. It's a stronger film, but still awkwardly mismatched by studio meddling. The original planned ending, Turning Back Time, which made its way into the first film, is also restored, making it look like any time he loses, or even simply doesn't like the turn of events he's left with, Superman can simply undo them. This is something you won't have seen, Neil. That Turning Back Time bit is at the end of the Donner Cut as well. So if you watch them back to back, it's like, oh, that doesn't work. Etch a sketch ending. Oh dear. Considering the circumstances, it's amazing that either version was coherent and that this movie remains beloved to this day. Again, I would urge its fans to watch it again before possible reevaluation. Superman 2. The adventure continues with the three villains from Krypton. Each one with the same powers as Superman. Each one dedicated to violence against mankind. Think of it. Three supervillains. Or four if you count him twice. The adventure continues in Paris with Lois Lane. I believe this is your floor. And the romance continues. The adventure continues in Washington. The world is on the brink of destruction. Superman, can you hear me? And Metropolis is in ruins. Is there no one on this planet to even challenge me? Superman! General, would you care to step outside? Revenge! 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 Now we're cooking, huh? Big one's just as strong as Superman. If you've only seen the first part, you haven't seen the best part. The adventure continues in Superman 2. Right, so I'm just going to briefly go over the um, the changes uh, to the Donner cut. Um, uh, for people who haven't actually seen it. At the beginning, you know there's that, that guff in Paris where uh, there's some terrorists, including... Uh, Richard Griffiths. Richard Griffiths, yeah. Um, uh, as a terrorist in, in France. And, and all of the stuff with the Eiffel Tower and that? Yeah. yeah. That was all Richard Lester. That was uh, created after um, Donna had gone. Uh, and the original version... Uh, when Superman gets rid of Rocket B, the one from that was bound for Hackensack, New Jersey, it crashes into the um, the uh, conveniently flying by Phantom Zone shard, 
uh, and then they burst out and go free and go towards the uh, earth or the moon and then that was going to be the end of Superman 1 it was going to end on a cliffhanger and join in two years time for the thrilling conclusion to the Superman saga which makes it far more sort of a film of two halves that and also a much lamer ending than the uh, what ended up as Superman 1 I, like I said you, you wouldn't have had the um, he wouldn't have to turn back time because mm. Lois would have just survived I think there was only one missile that would have made more sense. Or if there was two missiles, he still caught the other one. Either way, uh, she didn't die. <clears throat> okay, so uh, so the bit at the beginning with the lift was just to get an explosion to happen in space. Okay, so the, that was there. There's a much bigger previously on Superman section at the beginning with the title sequence. When they go to the office in the Daily Planet, um, in the Lester Cut, uh, Lois and uh, Clark get sent off to Niagara Falls. In the Donner Cut, Lois suddenly gets the inkling that he's Superman after colouring a suit that makes him look like Clark Kent onto Superman on the paper. And she gets this in her head and she dogs him the entire movie about it. She's totally sure of it. And she jumps out of the window so that he'll save her. And so he has to run down underneath her and blow her up and then like just sort of so she has a softer landing onto an awning so that so uh, that was replaced later on by the, uh, Richard Lester with her jumping into Niagara Falls and the big change is the hotel room when in <laughs> I've actually just put this as the pink bear scene in the Richard Lester cut the original cut that almost everyone uh, has seen of Superman 2 the, re- the way Lois finds out that Clark is definitely Superman he trips on a pink bear and his hand goes in the fire, and she checks it, and it's not burned. And so she concludes he's definitely Superman. Which is only about five minutes after she's already jumped in Niagara Falls. Yeah. And it's utterly ridiculous, because uh, here's what would happen if Superman, uh, his foot came up against a pink bear. Nothing. He'd step through it. He cannot be knocked over. He cannot be tripped over. He is the immovable object. He has his own gravity. He defies gravity. He laughs at gravity. The only reason he would have fallen over a pink bear accidentally was if it was on purpose. And that is a ridiculous scenario for that to happen. And it is lazy fucking writing. Which they try and pass that off as. Really, isn't it? Later on they have the weird conversation in two about the fact that maybe he did it, his subconscious did it because he wanted her to find out. Yeah. Just a couple of minutes after that, yeah. Where he yeah. takes the glasses off. All he had to do was just, he attempts to do it several times in both films, just straighten up, take off his glasses, and she'd know. Yes. Don't, you don't need to fall over a pink bear. That doesn't need to be done. I think they just, they, they, they made something up on the spot and went, oh, let's just do it anyway. There is so much of this film, especially the Lester stuff, of, oh, it doesn't make sense, but let's do it anyway. To me, Superman 2 is a fucking mess. There is none of the good stuff in the original Superman. I, I, I get that a lot of people love it. Hang on, am I moaning? I can't think of anything good to say about this film. Okay, the Donner Cut's not as bad. Uh, because in the Donner Cut, like I say, Lois takes out a gun, sounds like she's crazy, and she's like, I am willing to bet your life that you're Superman. You are Superman, aren't you? <laughs> Lois, look, we've been through these hallucinations of yours before. Can't you see what you almost did? <laughs> Throwing yourself off a building 30 stories high? Can't you see what a tragic mistake you almost made? I made a mistake. I made a mistake because... I risked my life instead of yours. Lois... 
Don't, don't be insane. And don't fall down, because you're just going to have to get up again. No, 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 don't be crazy now. What? you'd been wrong, Clark Kent would have been killed. Well, they're blank? Gotcha. This here, she full of blanks. <laughs> so Actually, I've, just, I've just noticed something looking at stills from this. Mm-hmm. His hair. Yeah, his hair. This scene, they had to go to an original screen test before they'd even shot the first Superman. This oh, no, like... I mean all the way through the film. Oh, yeah? Um, when he's Clark, it's parted one way. When he's Superman, it's parted the other. The... <laughs> A lot of the early footage that uh, Donna did, uh, they, it was while um, Christopher Reeve was still preparing for the part, uh, sort of bulking okay. up. So <laughs> if, if you see him really chunkified, that's the Lester stuff that happened later on. So he, he goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And all of, when he's really bulked up, Margot Kidder will look terrible because she's fallen into depression at this point. It wasn't the time that she ended up, you know, wandering around, uh, in a daze. That happened several years later and it's a pretty mm. horrible situation. But she was, this was, you know, very bad for her at this point because she felt like she really had a soft spot for Richard Donner. And so she felt like her friend, someone she respected, had been completely betrayed. And she just, and she clearly didn't like Lester all that much, and the Salkins were, uh, really, watch the documentaries. The Salkins are, Ilya Salkin is actually a real character to watch. He's like this sort of, you know, shyster. All big talk, and oh, it was all gonna be brilliant. He does a lot of gesticulation with his hands. But you know he's just like Joel Silver or Jerry Bruckheimer. He is this cold-hearted money man. His eyes are on the bottom line and he doesn't care about the fact that he can just retract and retract and retract the budget treat people like shit and it doesn't matter because as long as you can get something out that will make you more money than it costs you it's worth it and so by the fourth film he they weren't even part of that they sold the rights to canon who were even worse but yeah like i said Ilya's very entertaining to watch but never trust that man his agent and uh, we got his home number and uh, my father called him and uh, said uh, are you interested to direct Superman of course there had been an enormous amount of publicity so far which I mentioned in Brando and I mean it was becoming really a gigantic thing because it was long every year we said it would be out it wasn't getting bigger and bigger and of course it went into Gene Hackman and Marlon Brando I mean it, it became phenomenal um and he said um and he said i well, i offer you one million dollars two films um from the start because we decided to do that early on based on the on the logic of, of um, time and using the same locations and as we all know it has been done later with back to the future uh, which Bob Gale actually very nicely mentioned that we had done it first with the Musketeers. Um, and in, in that case, it was what we had said to Mario to write, which was two pictures. 
uh, I mean, absolutely, uh, you know, with, with the first ending and sequel ready to go. Uh, and everybody had agreed to that. And, uh, of course, it's, it's very interesting because it's something new that I just thought now. is that it, We had an incredible confidence, my father and I, really, because think about it, uh, if the first one doesn't work, Where's the second one, right? There's also a bit in the Donner Cut where uh, Superman shows off his crib. It changes the exact order of what of what happens. And when he sleeps with Lois, he's still Superman. So I don't think they actually are supposed to have implicitly had sex in the Donner Cut. In the Richard Lester Cut, they definitely had sex. Ergo, Superman returns. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. That's when it happens. And that also answers all of Jason Lee's questions from more rats. <laughs> I was trying not to bring that up. But they're engaged. Doesn't matter, it can't happen. Why not? It's bound to come up. It's impossible. Lois could never have Superman's baby. Do you think her fallopian tubes could handle his sperm? I guarantee he blows a load like a shotgun right through her back. What about her womb? Do you think it's strong enough to carry his child? Sure, why not? He's an alien, for Christ's sake. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. If Lois gets a tan, the kid could kick right through her stomach. Only someone like Wonder Woman has a strong enough uterus to carry his kid. The only way he could bang regular chicks is with a kryptonite condom. That would kill him. How's it I go from the verge of hot Floridian sex with Brandy to man of still coital debates with you in the food court? Kyrgyzstan is not part of the food court. All of the bits with Superman's mother in the Fortress of Solitude, they're gone. They reinstated Marlon Brando, and there are some really important moments there. It's Brando talking to him about the man he's going to be. Now, here's the thing. When he decides to reject his powers, his mother says, do it if you love her, but this is not reversible. And he says, I love her, and that's it. That There's no real symbolic side of that. It's just about sort of, I will give this all up for love. Jarrell says, you can choose between... Saving the world, being selfless, or giving all of this responsibility up and being selfish. And he gives her Lois, who's standing behind Superman, wearing his costume post-coital. And he gives her a filthy look. Basically, this is a point where Kal-El is being selfish and deciding he's... When's it going to be my time? I want to be... I want to be happy. I want to have this woman. And that's the best part of the film. But because they didn't want to put Brando in it, because he'd be expensive, they you get Laura instead. And they blunted that point. Your father and I tried to anticipate your every question, Kal-El. This is the one we hoped you would not ask. But I have to. Because she's everything I want in life. And she, the one you have chosen, she feels as much for you? Yes. Then if this is what you wish, if you intend to live your life with a mortal, you must live as a mortal. You must become one of them. Yours is a high happiness. The fulfillment of your mission, the inspiration you must have felt. You must have felt that happiness within you. My son, surely you cannot deny that feeling. Is this how you repay their gratitude? By abandoning the weak, the defenseless, the needy for, for the sake of your selfish pursuits. Oh, my son, are you sure?
I love her. So then when he gets his powers back, in the Leicester cut, he just finds a green shard, no explanation whatsoever. In the uh, Donner cut, Jarell comes out of the hologram and says to him, I can give you everything that's left in me and everything that's left in the fortress to restore your powers, but the price you have to pay is you have to say goodbye to the fortress and you have to say goodbye to me. This is the last time we will speak. Which goes back to the pretty much the beginning of the first one. Yeah. The... Is it the son becomes the father, the father well, becomes the son? Yeah. And he uh, he literally dies to save his son. You know, dies a second death for that. And that's a wonderful symbolic moment. And what, you know, definitely the best bit of Superman 2. And no one ever bloody saw it until 2006. And it's not the widely seen version of it. It's not, you know, easy to get hold of. You can, you can get hold of it, you know. But it's going to cost a lot more than if you just wanted to buy the basic bog standard cut. Even you know the five disc box set that's on regular release right ne- now. Ne- never buy the five disc. There's a better. You don't buy the black Superman box set. Get the blue one. The eight disc one. If you want to, yes. see, if you want to see all of these, big if obviously. Okay. In all seriousness, what I'd actually suggest doing is just track down the Donica on DVD on its own and assess it from there. And if you really mm. love it, then uh, maybe consider the Blu-ray. It'll be cheaper just to get the Donica on its own. Because that's the rare thing and the difficult thing. Because ultimately, you don't need three, you don't need four. And everyone's got one. If you lived in the suburbs, you were issued it. It came in the mail with samples of Tide. <laughs> right. Um, at the very, very end, the Fortress Showdown with all of those goofy powers uh, and Cellophane S and the uh, bouncing all over the place, that's not in the uh, Donna cut. I think they just scissored those out. Although, interestingly, Donna did shoot a lot of that stuff. Yes, the, the, other the ones, extra the... power that, that that no one ever had before. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in the abuse of powers moment. The other ones, the the monuments. Yeah, uh, it's the it's Mount Rushmore in the Leicester cut. In the Donner cut, it's um, <laughs> the Washington <laughs> Monument has Brewer's droop. And at the very very end, when Superman turns back time, it goes swing. Uh huh. And at the very end, um, after the showdown, uh, he says goodbye to Lois and he destroys the fortress with I-beams. And then he brings Lois back to her apartment and that's when she does some of her absolute... uh, That's when Margaret Kidder does some of her best acting. She's got tears shining in her eyes and she says, Goodbye, up, up and away. And he sort of flies away and it's like uh, she doesn't have to go through her... Um, histrionics in the office of don't you know how much this is killing me which is just guilt tripping him um, she doesn't say it it's all Kal-El realising that he's screwed up but unfortunately rather than letting an adult deal with a difficult situation and you know getting on with her life he decides to turn back time again and this is an unacceptable decision because it means that whatever happens he can just reverse it, as you say, Neil. This is this is not. I can understand at the end of Superman one, that's fine. But if you literally have him do the same thing again, yep, unacceptable. And it's not even fine at the end of Superman one. It's flawed. It's the it's the wrong decision. What should he should actually have done is left Lois where she was, let her die, and dealt with the aftermath of not being able to save everyone because. Ultimately, Superman can't save everyone. Sometimes he's going to lose, and they never explore that. Yeah, that that is one of the biggest problems. Keep it light. Never have Superman fail. Not permanently. 
don't want to make the kids cry. And then at the end of both cuts, Superman bullies a man. Yeah. Did that bother either of you two? Mm-hmm. Just a bit. <laughs> he goes into the diner again, and this guy who's been shown to be a total asshole, throwing his weight around, making everyone's lives miserable. And and he, in the commentary, Donna says, you got to watch this because Superman cannot beat up a guy. But he does. He lets this idiot break his hand, punching him. And yeah, using abilities, him... using abilities he wouldn't be able to harness if he was just Clark Kent. He throws him down the bar and back first onto a pinball machine, wherein he may have lacerated his spine. You going to turn the world back if that happens again? Yeah, probably. Is the is the seventies? That seems to be the action that uh, he chooses to do the most. Let's just turn back time. It's an abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And while it's supposed to be played for laughs, it just makes me think, Jesus, Batman again would say, I can't believe you're doing this. Okay. Superman 2's talking points. Um, we've already talked about Kidder's acting. Uh, the Kryptonians, we haven't talked about... Neil <gasps> before Zod! <sighs> the wonderful Terrence Stamp, Sarah Douglas and Jack O'Halloran. Who never gets to speak! No, yeah, well, he's a mute, isn't he? Um, no, no, I think he's basically Jaws, because this, this uh, was filmed mm. only a year after uh, A Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, I can see that, but yeah. I do love Terrence Stamp in this film. I don't know why. He's not that good, but he's, I like him. I, there's a point at the, uh, at the end where he's like, kill him, somebody kill him, and he seems to be really frustrated with the fact that he's wearing this ridiculous outfit. <laughs> The yeah. costumes of these guys is... I mean, you wouldn't dress Siegfried and Roy in these things. No. They're not the least bit scary. Not one iota scary. I find the the, the uh, Kryptonians actually embarrassingly bad. I love Terence Stamp. And for some reason, Sarah Douglas, that's actually a pretty handsome woman in her day. She rips a guy's, uh, an astronaut's badge off, and then he, t- he goes all fat, and then she kicks him in the balls off the moon. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And again, these guys with their sort of hanging wooden scarecrow flying uh, formation really make it seem like actually, no, this is this flying thing doesn't actually work. For some reason, when Reeve does it on his own, he sort of commits to it, and he's sort of like, yeah, you got his cape fluttering in the breeze, even in space, and he's like really committed to it. But they're just sort of hanging their hands out like that, like two wet kippers. <laughs> the cape kind of helps it work, I think. Yeah, actually, the fact that they don't have capes definitely doesn't help. But when it comes down to it, mainly it's down to the fact that we've got flying heroes now that fly convincingly. Hancock, Iron Man, Superman in Superman Returns, just Thor. Thor, yeah, the flying has been done now in much more dynamic ways. So just watching them sort of go just creakily carried around the place, it just looks awful. Moaning again. What's See, good? I like the Neil Before Zod. Thing. Neil Before Zod is freaking awesome, and it's so it's so legendary. Even like the nostalgia critic adopted it, but it's so awesome just to hear the line Neil Before Zod. Yeah, um, I think that the, the, the theme of three Kryptonians coming down to Earth and threatening the entire planet, and Superman not knowing quite what to do, is uh, is is quite powerful. Obviously, the fight in Metropolis post-Avengers is not only ridiculous, but tedious. It was very tedious when I watched it. It goes on a long time. Yeah. 
Especially because Witcher, they're intent on it not feeling too dangerous. So there's bits where, like, a guy's getting blown down the street talking on his phone and he's, he's laughing while it's happening. It's the guy like, being blown backwards on his roller skates. Yeah, it's like, it's okay, kids, no one's really getting hurt. And it's like, you know what? I have just seen the Avengers tear-assing around New York, beating the crap out of the scrolls. Just like the most eye-popping, jaw-dropping movie ever. This isn't even worth my time. I could be watching the Avengers right now. <laughs> Yeah, I kept having that thought. I know. I, it's, it's, a, it's an awful comparison to make. But ultimately, you know, it's like an old BBC computer. You wouldn't use that these days in place of your current computer, even if you did have great fond memories. Uh, also, I feel like a super-powered fight. It didn't feel like a super-powered fight. Feeble. There's a point where um, Ursa says, Oh, Superman, and throws a manhole cover at him. Now, the way it works is she's super powerful, he's super powerful. The thing that's going to break at this point is not Superman. He, he wouldn't fly back into the car. It would simply crumple against him. It doesn't matter how hard she throws it. The thing that's going to break here is the manhole cover. Yeah, they use very... The, the largest object they use is a bus. Yeah. Which, again, would crumple. And that just made me think of the fight in the end of Iron Man. I, I know, again, we're moaning, but uh, uh, decrepit fight in the middle of uh, New York. And this was the biggest superhero fight up until what? Spider-Man? Yeah, I would just probably say Spider-Man 2. Because think, think about it. I mean, maybe up against uh, Green Goblin in, uh, in the parade in Spider-Man 1. But that's... 20 years of seniority. You know, hats off to it for at least being the only one to at least attempt it. It doesn't matter that it completely fails by modern standards, because it kept people happy back in the day. I'm going to moan, so I get the alarm ready, but the special effects <laughs> seem to be lacking weight to them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Everything Which floats is... very slowly across the screen, because ultimately they don't want to kill people. But there's a lot of lack of weight to the flying as well. You, you just take an example from the trailer for Man of Steel, to how flight's done in that to how flight's done in this. <laughs> Very different. Obviously, it feels like we're being so unfair, but at the same time, it's important to make this distinction. And this is coming. From, bear in mind, the important thing to point out is here: I am the guy that's always championed practical effects. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't like CG at all. No, I. Do, I don't. And this mind thing's CG. just practical effects. But this is, you know, this shows you the limitations and how quickly those style of practical effects also age you well, know, I do like the space sequence at the beginning uh, which uh, is practical effects but it's it's microscopic chemical reactions they don't do those anymore oh yeah yeah I know even yeah that's pretty cool they also don't seem to be able to decide whether the Kryptonians are used to having the powers or not mm. Mm. Because there's a lot of mocking humans for having to use machines for things, but yeah. they didn't know they'd got the powers until they got to work. They have to use <laughs> machines to get around. It's like, well, you, you've only been flying for 25 minutes, and Non can't even get his heat vision to work. <laughs> the whole final solution of what to do with them as well. So what actually happens? He crushes General Zod's hand and then tosses him into a pit, and now being rendered human, Zod falls to a brutal death. Superman killed. And then Non falls to his death, and then Lois kills Ursa, throwing her back into this pit. Well, you know, don't think about it too much. Yeah, that's a point, really. When you think about it, what actually happens to them? How far down does that go? It's just... Far enough oh. to break a neck. Yeah, that's true. Or drown in icy water. Or just to fall out of the film, probably. In the original um, Donna cut, 
he was going to turn back time anyway, so they just carry on going past the Earth in the Phantom Zone and um, don't get blown out of it and freed. So technically, he didn't kill them there. But here's the thing. Superman gleefully kills Zod and then goes, Ha ha ha, you all fell for my plan, suckers. No. Superman would be racked with guilt that what he had done had actually killed them. Yeah, he, he cannot take a life. He can't. It's really important to him because it's so easy. Yeah, and that's the point with him. It's like so that. easy to kill that it's the effort of not killing. It doesn't matter that they fall to their death in a Disney-like way, or the Joker in Batman '89 falls to his death in a Disney-like way. Just because we didn't get to see their brains splatter doesn't mean that they, their death wasn't deliberately caused by their so-called hero. Mm. So you know, while you can never kill Lex Luthor, uh, just take him to jail. Couldn't he just take the Kryptonians to jail as well? Yeah, it wouldn't make sense. Or yeah, put them in the Phantom Zone. You don't have to kill them. But that was, of course, you know, we don't know what to do with these guys. Just get rid of them. There's too many. No, he should have imprisoned them within the Fortress of Solitude somehow and then gotten them taken to an actual prison. Or Phantom Zone again. Ultimately, he had to abide by the people of his planet. That's what he'd do. Yeah. Murdering them wouldn't be on the agenda. They don't have the death penalty on Krypton. No, they have the Phantom Zone, which is far worse. <laughs> yeah. How was the fortress back again? Didn't he destroy it? He destroyed it at the end. No, hang on. He destroyed it at the end of the Donner Cut. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but then he went back in time, so it didn't get destroyed. For the fight with the Kryptonians is in the fortress which he's already destroyed before he goes back in time. He didn't destroy the whole fortress just uh, the parapet uh, which by the way is back in uh, Superman Returns. I don't know. <laughs> Continuity fun. He doesn't even label his crystals. Imagine having 30 identical memory sticks knocking about the place with the complete history of the earth on them and not knowing which one you're about to put into your USB drive. That could be an interesting game of memory card roulette. <laughs> Stuff that doesn't make sense about Superman 2. The pink bear, we've already covered. How does Lex know about the fortress? How? No he one just ever randomly tells him. He just randomly works out that Superman keeps flying north a lot. Does he? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's right. It's the first thing he says in the prison. After he builds the hologram projector thing. Okay, then uh, why does nobody try to stop the air balloon that they escape in? Otis is standing in the courtyard of a jail during a, a, an attempted jailbreak, holding a rope ladder. No one looks up. No one sees the balloon. No one tries to stop them escaping. Not a shot is fired. It's the literally slowest vehicle on the planet. She could have tried to save him on a penny farthing, and it would have been quicker. But nobody tries to stop it. He's wearing prison fatigues. He doesn't freeze to death. Where does that coat come from? Where does the snowmobile come from? Uh, uh, they're flying uh, above mountains, and he's just acting like they're in Wichita. Uh, uh, stop asking questions. Look at the pretty scenery. Let's not overanalyze too much, shall we? No, you know what? Let's analyze. Not too much, just enough. <sighs> Why is the removal of powers not permanent? They, they say to him in all cuts, if you take this away, it's staying away. You can't go back from this. Apart from that time when you can go back from this. At least in the Donner Cut, there's something sacrificed for him to go back. But in the, the Lester Cut, they'd have you believe you just pick up a green thing and you can have it all back. But he don't know what was going on there. <laughs> he, he, he's a jumbled mess. 
And the final one is bullying, further time meddling, lobotomizing upset women. Is he even responsible anymore? Now, lobotomizing is important because it's romantic for you to say, oh, he kisses her and he kisses the memory away. No, he burns into her brain with his heat vision, finds the memory core, finds the last five days and burns them away. Like the flashy thing in Men in Black. I had to look it up. Apparently the super kiss rehit mole thing did exist in the comics. I'm sure it does. Which is still mental. But there's 75 years of continuity and 75 years of potentially bad writing. You don't put that in your film. No. Think about it before it goes in. Why can't Lois know about Clark? Uh, Because she might be in danger? Yeah, I'm tr- I don't even, didn't even manage to convince myself with that she one. She knows did about I? him in the comics because she's married she's to a him bad in the reporter comics. and blabs everything he tells her. They wanted it to be an ongoing series. Uh, Richard Donner even said, you know, who knows if if the, the uh, Salkins had been more professional, we might still be making Superman films today. Dude's eighty three now. With the best will in the world, we probably still wouldn't be making. Technically, we still are making Superman films today. <laughs> Because even Man of Steel still holds some relation to Superman's 1 and 2. Not as but, much as Returns, which is technically which is, a direct sequel. Yeah, technically it's the alternate Superman 3. But yeah, anyway, why keep it hidden from Lois? Why not treat her like an adult? He treats her like a child, an animal, a pet. Alexander Salkine presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor in Superman 3. This time, Richard Pryor has come to Metropolis. Oh, I'm sorry. And he's got something to sell. (laughs) He's the best con man and the world's greatest computer genius. Let me tell you something. I can't ski. But then he falls. For a scheme to turn the ultimate computer into the ultimate weapon. What would it do for me? It would do anything you tell me to tell it to do. A machine so powerful. Baby! It's daddy! It can control the earth. Now. Now! Getting down to business. Change the weather. And reprogram Superman. Thought you'd never get here. Well, I hope you don't expect me to save you, because I don't do that anymore. I asked you to kill Superman, and you're telling me you couldn't even do that one simple thing. Ah. All right, Webster, the game's over. But only the man who pulled the switch on Superman. Oh, uh, see, I'm not with them, Superman. You're gonna fool me, mister. Can pull the plug on Super Machine. You're going to go down in history as the man who killed Superman. Um, no. Superman 3. Uh, watch the tree. This time is going to be the best time of all. Superman 3. 
1983, three years after Superman 2, the Salkins tried once again to make use of the Superman license, bringing in comedy hitman of the hour, Richard Pryor, who had made his name for himself doing filthy stand-up. Having set himself on fire, freebasing cocaine and drinking 151-proof rum, having to be extinguished in the street by police officers a few years previously, Pryor seemed the ideal child-friendly replacement for French Connection star Gene Hackman's buffoonishly pompous Saturday morning villain Lex Luthor. The film was an incoherent slapstick farce which did dismal box office relative to the first two. In response to this, Columbia Pictures held prior to dire account by paying him $40 million more to appear in their brilliant movies for five more years. Series producer Ilya Salkin originally wrote a treatment for this film that included Brainiac, Mr. Mrs. Pitlick and Supergirl, but Warner Brothers did not like it. The treatment was released online in 2007, so you can check track that one down. The Mr. Mixus Pidlick portrayed in the outline varies from the good-humoured comic counterpart as he uses his abilities to seriously harm... Dudley Moore was the top choice to play the role. That's actually pretty good casting. Meanwhile, in the same treatment, Brainiac was from Kolu and had discovered Supergirl in the same way that Superman was found by the Kents. Brainiac is portrayed as the surrogate father to Supergirl and eventually fell in love with his daughter, who did not reciprocate his feelings as she had fallen in love with her cousin Superman. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He didn't actually say her cousin, Superman, but Superman is her cousin. So You know what, though? That's yeah. a hell of a lot more coherent than the Supergirl plot. Yeah, actually, reading the Supergirl plot, actually, that makes... That, what I just read, makes more sense than Supergirl. After Margot Kidder publicly criticised the Selkins for their treatment of Richard Donner, the producers punished, sorry, rewarded the actress by reducing her role in Superman 3 to a brief cameo. On Richard Lester's direction of Superman 3, Christopher Reeve stated... He was always looking for a gag, something to the point where the gags involving Richard Pryor went over the top. I mean, I didn't think that him going off the top of a building on skis with a pink tablecloth around his shoulders was particularly funny. The film's script by David and Leslie Newman was also criticised when Richard Donner was hired to direct the first two films. He found that Newman's scripts were so distasteful that he hired Tom Mankiewicz for heavy rewrites. Since Donner and Mankiewicz were no longer attached to the franchise, the Salkins were finally able to bring their vision of Superman to the screen and once again hired the Newmans for writing duties. So basically, Superman 3 is what Superman 1 would have been like if the Salkins had not hired Richard Donner and Donner had not hired Tom Mankiewicz. Well, at least this one keeps a consistent tone. It's not a great tone, but it keeps it. <laughs> now, you actually said on Twitter you quite enjoyed this one. Explain. I I, I think it's just because this is the one I've seen the most as a kid right. that I have this bizarre soft spot for it. I will admit, it's absolutely terrible and shocking and nonsensical, but I, at least I wasn't bored like I was in Superman 2. Ah, so Superman 2 was boring. Was Superman 4 more boring than 3? Yes. That's <laughs> um, a yes from Paul there. Um, I kind of enjoyed 4. Oh, dude! <laughs> okay. in a, in a, it, but bear in mind, I'm the guy that will go and watch like the Asylum films and enjoy them, so I can en- I can enjoy a bad movie. Oh, trust me, Superman 4 is gish. Absolute gish, but... At least, it, again, it was... I think, you know, I probably enjoyed it just because it... Hell, it was short. It, it was short. It was short <laughs> it because they cut 43 minutes from it because it was cheaper just to put out a really short film. And like, also, I did notice Jim Broadbent. <laughs> yeah, I did notice him too as uh, Mr... What was his name? Um, Dubois. Yeah, the French one. Um, 
Let's stick on Superman 3 for a little bit. Uh, so, so as, as I understand it, Neil, you found Superman 1 had petered out over over time when you watched it. You actually became bored by the end. And Superman 2 you found boring the whole way through. Uh, yeah, because I think it came down to you're looking forward to this showdown with Zod. It's these three superpower beings and against one superpower being. And it's kind of anticlimactic because it's, it's kind of dull. There's a, yeah. Yeah, there's no pace to it. I think the pay, I think because the, at least Superman 1 and 2 are shot back to back and meant to go together and because you have that change of direction, mm. they become kind of, they don't quite fit right. So the pacing's off. They don't, they seem to fly through, like, like we were talking about the first half of Superman 1, which is absolutely brilliant up until mm. you leave Smallville. Mm. You know, it's taking its time and telling a story, but after that, it also just rushes through everything and doesn't really give you any motivations of the characters and things like that. We yeah. know that Lex Luthor proclaims himself, you know, the, the greatest criminal mastermind. We don't know why he is, why he wants to be. Yeah, we know nothing about Lex after all four movies are finished, after all five movies, really. Yeah, it's just like, uh, I think that kind of bugged me, at least with like, the Richard Pryor character, who, strange enough, I kind of enjoyed. I'd have enjoyed more if it wasn't a Superman movie. Mm. But then again, Superman. Some might argue it wasn't. It's a fair argument. Yeah. But you can see the elements of Superman in there, like the, 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 his, his brainwave at the end, the, the supercomputer is, feels very brainiac-y. Yeah, the, that was brainiac, and bad Superman is, is their way of shouldering in bizarro. Yeah. Um, see, now the, the most recent time I watched it before this, I found Superman 3 hilarious because for some reason I got Patrick Warburton's voice in my head, and I kept thinking of, you know, when he's drunk and he's miserable. Uh, folks who haven't seen it, um, Richard Pryor pretends to be George S. Patton and then gives Superman some kryptonite, and for, for no reason at all, Superman doesn't go, Ugh, kryptonite, he goes, cheers. And the kryptonite's been a like synthetically created and they've added in tobacco tar to say hey kids don't smoke which interestingly goes against the massive Marlboro smoking uh, <laughs> endorsement in Superman 2 where like there's, there's like Marlboro everywhere but anyway um, and somehow strangely more subtle than the message in Superman 4 was that Burger King? Well, no, 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 the general message of oh, Superman. Oh, do you mean the whole the, the, and nuclear war bad? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, there was a lot of Burger King in Superman 4 as well. Um, anyway, uh, so for folks who haven't seen it, he is uh, corrupted by this bad kryptonite, and rather than becoming incredibly weak, he just becomes surly and drunk and he becomes, miserable. He becomes douchebag Superman. Yeah. It's not bad Superman, he's just a dick. And he, he isn't like a force for terrible evil in the world, he only uses his power to annoy. Uh, he makes the Leaning Tower of Pisa straight, like he just sort of nudges it forwards, and he goes, hey, you guys can deal with that. And um, the guys selling Leaning Tower of Pisa souvenirs at the base of the Leaning Tower are now out of business, so they have to go and buy a whole bunch of straight Tower of Pisa. And then at the end, he leans it again, so they smash all their stuff up in it. There's yeah. no casual xenophobia in any of these films at all. No. <laughs> Particularly the Italians and the French. Which is like English-speaking Italians were European and must have suffered some of that shit. They don't care. They were making money. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, anyway, he's mean to a kid. He melts a mirror. He pings the peanuts into the bottles when he's... That's it, yeah. He's drunk in a bar. Oh, they like the Olympic flame at one point. Yes, they're going to light the Olympic torch, and he goes... (laughs) And it's like, right, no Olympics, folks. Cheers, Superman. And it's like this, this really kind of, 
like comically feeble, like not at all scary. Uh, it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be sort of like campy comedy. But, but here's the thing: Christopher Reeve is putting everything into it. So, like in his eyes, he's he's really trying to find the truth in this scenario. So he's the only one taking this whole film seriously. It's really mismatched. Mm. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And, and then he fights himself in the tr- the wrecking yard, which should have been so much better than what it was. It's it's Fight Club. It, no, it's not even <laughs> that good. Well, no, it's, as I say, I'm not saying it's as good as Fight Club. I'm saying that that's that's the premise that they're putting forward here. And, and the irony is that it's not perfectly cyclical irony, but Superman could smash himself around the knackers yard all day. He's not going to find any kryptonite. There's nothing that can kill him there. No, it was like the drop, the bit with the electromagnet. Yeah, drops it on his head. It just pushes him into the ground. So what does he yeah. do? Throws him in a car crusher. Crushes him a bit more, and then he pushes his way out of the <laughs> car crusher. Like, ultimately, symbolically, if you want to deconstruct it, and they didn't want you to because they don't care, uh, it's um, Clark Kent's uh, resentful side of. Uh, oh, sorry, it's Kal-El's resentful side of. Look, I've done all of this stuff for humanity, and they've done nothing back for me. It's all of that coming out, and he's beating down on the altruistic side of himself, personified as Clark Kent, and then the altruistic side strangles to death his own resentment and drowns him what does that even mean which obviously I'm deconstructing it for no reason because it doesn't mean mean anything it's not supposed to mean anything it means that Superman seriously needs to go see a therapist it really does Superman breakdown coming soon folks (laughs) Uh, the the film tries way too hard the whole way through to to make you go (laughs) And unfortunately, this time, I wasn't laughing. And I just sort of sat stony-faced, wishing for it to be over. And there's this ludicrous bit in the begin, in the middle, where uh, Gus, using a single computer, takes control of all the computers in the world. And he makes crazy things happen, which are all very, very comical. Yes, in it's, 1983. It, yeah. It's, it's proof that even back then, Hollywood still couldn't get computers right. Yeah, no, they, they really couldn't. That, that actually is a primary example of Hollywood really not getting computers. But again, they weren't trying to get computers. They were aiming very much at kids that they considered to be dumb. Well, let's face it, they couldn't even get oil plus fire equals boom right. <laughs> Actually, when he welds the oil tanker back together. There's, um, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I've actually got a whole section on Superman's powers here. Let's do that now, and this covers all four films, actually, before we move on to Superman 4 and finish up. Um, obviously, physics takes a back seat with the Superman mythos, because Krypton had a red sun, and it was an enormous planet relative to Earth. Its former inhabitants can defy our gravity and possess enhanced constitutions. There's even a documentary called The Science of Superman that attempts to explain how these abilities work. Okay, so his abilities, basically, if you want to just boil it down to the main ones, you, you guys just want to reel them off? The ones that he really has, not the main The up. ones he really has yep. in the comics, well, he's got yep. the heat vision, heat vision and x-ray yep. vision, yep. flight, invulnerability, yep. Yep. super strength, yep. the uh, ice breath. Uh, ice uh, breath. Yep, super breath, which can be used as ice breath, and uh, he's also got super hearing, and uh, he doesn't go into it much, but super sight and super smell as well. And that's, oh, and super speed as well. And super intelligence as well. Yep, he has a brain that can work at ridiculous speeds, uh, to, so that he can cope with moving that fast. Yeah, Although he's not overpowered whatsoever. Both Batman and Lex's brains are better than his still, so that <laughs> says lots of things about them. Right, these have fluctuated over three quarters of a century, adjusted when they become too strong to allow writers to craft more compelling stories, and occasionally in the earlier days, adding nonsensical extra powers. However, the movies portray multiple uses of Superman's powers that were just 
press put in because they thought it would be the uh, at best symbolic and at worst just plain ludicrous. They didn't put it in because it'd be ludicrous. They put it in because it would be cool or because they needed to get something done. Uh, and a lot of the time it's just like, could he do this? Ah, pff, yeah, let's just say he can do this. And no one will make any issue of this in 30 years' yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, the one I'm thinking of right now is the one from 4, the stare and I rebuild the Great Wall the of China. Rebuild yeah, yeah. The rebuild Yeah, that's one of the worst, because it literally... It, 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 it has no basis in any of Superman's powers. It, it actually st- first manifests in Superman 2, where Zod is able to move a shotgun around with some sort of telekinetic hand beam... And he even, uh, they all sort of blast him with these hand beams later on at the Fortress of Solitude. No explanation as to why they've got that. No explanation for even what it is. But, uh, Radiation Dude is able to sort of uh, propel people into the air and spin them around with his radiation powers. But Superman's also able to bring them down. And he's able to use the same telekinetic power to rebuild a wall. And not even like, just so that it's sort of like, the bricks cram back into a sort of wall shape. Like perfect brick and mortar, nothing ever even touched it. It reverses. Um, it reverses. <laughs> Almost exactly reverses it. Yeah. Oh, 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 the, the, the super kiss that wipes people's memories. There is that. It's uh, That's a lobotomy where he uh, uses his... Uh, it's actually heat vision. He does it on a microscopic level, goes into Lois's brain and burns away the last few days' worth of memories. And he does that at least twice. In Superman 1 and then in Superman... Sorry, in Superman 2 at the end and then in Superman 4 just because he feels like it. Yep. Within about 30 seconds of... Telling her that he's Superman. Yeah, he tells her so he, he chucks off a building as Clark Kent. They fall down, and she's screaming. And then he comes up as Superman with Clark's glasses on. She attaches them to her belt, and then they fly off. It sort of emulates the flight from the first film, only much, much cheaper. There's a point where he actually drops her, and she goes through the air, going ah. I say she goes through the air. She just hangs across the chroma key, waving her arms. They don't make any allusion to the idea that she would drop altitude and then he sort of picks her up again because otherwise she just would have dropped like a stone and died then he drops her off on the roof kisses her again and then burns her brain out and then comes back in his clock she's like Clark why am I cold and you get the feeling he might have done that every day for the past four years yeah there's got to be a limit on how much the human brain can take that you get a flashy thing away half a med school <laughs> yeah uh, oh god okay right Helping others to fly while holding their fingertips. Uh, actually, that, that relates to that and uh, in Superman 1 as well with the, uh, the the flying scenes. Melt-away clothing. Oh, yes. There's multiple occasions. In 1, uh, when he flies down. Uh, in 2, he runs. And also when he's in the chamber. In 3, I can't remember if it actually happens, but definitely in 4, when he drops, like I said, and he comes back up as Superman. Basically, his clothes just sort of disappear off his body. And they're like, oh, we can't figure out a way to get them off him. He just takes them off really quickly or something. I don't Seriously. He could move that fast, easily. I was about to say, the Flash does it. He he keeps his costume in a ring. Yeah, it's like a spring-out ring costume, and he takes it. Because he's just that fast, so we'd never see his dong. That doesn't explain why, when going into the chamber to have his powers removed by being barraged by rays from Krypton's red sun, Superman's costume melts away to reveal Clark Kent's street clothes... So what, he wears Clark Kent's clothes underneath Superman's costume, over which he wears Clark Kent's clothes as well. He also leaves behind a symbolic Superman standing inside the chamber. There seems to be this fundamental lack of grasp that no matter what clothes he's wearing, he's always Kal-El. 
both Superman and Spider-Man are like the most prevalent superheroes for keeping their costume underneath their regular clothes. And for some reason, I mean, do Superman's boots go under his shoes? I don't know how that works, because I was about to say, at least with the Mark Webb, Spider-Man, half the time, Spider-Man has a backpack with him. Yeah. So that makes sense. He shoves his clothes in there, webs it up somewhere, goes, does what he needs to do, comes back. Yeah. Does no one ever, like, I mean, have you ever looked at someone wearing a Superman shirt underneath a white shirt? Yes. You don't need x-ray eyes for that one. I've done that. (laughs) Yeah. I did that at work a few weeks ago. It's the most obvious shirt to wear under a white shirt ever. And, uh, and you have to do the whole unbutton the middle button so you can be seen. Yeah. You, yeah, I did that too. Let's talk actually in Superman Returns about how... Lo- I, you know what? Let's talk about it now. How the hell doesn't anyone figure out that Clark Kent is Superman? There's There's been a, like a mythos over the years of... Well, well technically it's like a, a low-level hypnotism that Superman puts out that everyone's stupid around him. I like the. I think Glasses it's part of your hair on a different side. It changes who you are completely. I, I like the. Um, what is it? I think it's one of the explanations either in one of the comics or one of the animated films where. Oh no! I think it's one of the comics. I think it's World's Finest where Bruce Wayne works finally works out that Clark Kent is Superman, and he, mm-hmm. he, the line is something like, "Yeah, I vibrate slightly when people are taking photographs, so I'm always blurry." What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even the comic books haven't come up with a good reason on that one. Do you know what? Here's the thing. I don't know if they've done this for Man of Steel, and it's, this is going to date like hell, but I'm going to say it anyway. If they haven't done it for Man of Steel, they bloody well should have. Do away with Clark Kent. Do away with the secret identity. Just make him Superman. Because the him pretending to be someone else, if it's in that public a space, it makes everyone around him seem stupid. It's worse than Dexter. Yeah. The, uh, the funny thing is, they even call Superman on it in Green Lantern, which is not a great movie, but he turns up with the, the, the crappy mask on and she goes, I know it's you, Hal. I've known you since I was ex, you know, six years old. I know yeah. your cheekbones and stuff. It's like, yeah, see? Someone can work it out and he's wearing a domino mask. Uh, from what I can see of the trailers, maybe the, at the very, very end, he ends up working at the paper and now he's suddenly sort of fallen into place of being Clark Kent. But I, I don't think that's so crucial to the Superman mythos that it couldn't maybe be just done away with. Uh, he definitely needs to work close to people. He needs to have some semblance of knowing what the the little people go through. Because if he's only ever got a bird's eye view of everything, he's going to become like Dr. Manhattan. Mm. But there's other ways than this farce he goes through every single... I, I think it's just something we've learned to accept with Superman the whole. No one works out that it's Clark Kent is Superman. It's even worse in Smallville because he doesn't even bother with the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he... he... He did by the last season. Anyway, moving on from Smallville. All right, turning back time by flying around the Earth. We've already said uh-huh. what a ridiculously irresponsible power this is, but also it ruins narratives because yep. nothing can ever go wrong for him anymore. Because yep. you know, basically he has enough powers to save the day no matter what happens, but if for some reason someone dies that he couldn't stop that happening to, just change it. Just Turn back time. And if you believe that the Donner cut coming directly after the original film, he can literally do it whenever he feels like the situation has not turned out to his liking. The Donner cut's a weird one because it actually asks you to accept that this is the first time he's done this and that the original ending to the first Superman had happened where it was just destroys the Phantom Zone shard with a missile and all of that stuff. Well, actually, it doesn't ask you directly. You have to know the story of the production of the film to know what it's even asking you to accept. 
But as I said before, it's actually worse that he reverses everything in Superman 2. Because in Superman, he only reverses time by a, f- a few hours to prevent natural disasters. In Superman 2, he turns back days and days and days. Changes everything. The Kryptonians had a huge impact on the planet Earth. And he undoes all of that. Because Lois feels sad. No, no, no. This is not being overly harsh. No, I don't... No. Kind of funny because I'm reading uh, 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 in the Injustice comic at the minute where a tragedy happens right at the start. So if Superman can do that, why doesn't he just fly up, spin around the world? I'm yeah. fairly certain he's only ever done that in the Donna films. I think they're, yeah, they're the only place stupid enough that they do that. Because like I yeah. said earlier, once you do that, he's overpowered. He cannot lose. The reason they actually did that in the Donna cut is that they never filmed a, a better ending than that. And they weren't happy with Richard Lester's. Well, he just burns Lois's brain out. So they didn't like the super kiss and amnesia thing. And they just figured that turning back time is much more responsible. Just let her live with it, for Christ's sake. Anyway, uh, Cellophane S. This is uh, Superman 2, the Lester cut. Uh, for folks who haven't seen Superman 2 for a while, uh, Non, the mute Jaws-like guy, takes a big leap at Superman when they get to the Fortress of Solitude. Superman goes, ah, uh, not for me, Sonny Jim. And he takes the S off his chest and throws it at him. And he goes, oh, I'm stuck in a big bag. What the <laughs> fuck was that? To sell a kid's toy? It wasn't. There were hardly any toys attached to these films. There were the, um, there was DC superheroes, but they weren't based on the movies. Yeah, there was the, the Mego stuff from the 60s and 70s. But that was based on the comic license, it wasn't based on the movie. It's nothing, that, that was just literally a, oh, I don't know, wouldn't it be a, a blast if Superman did this? And, I don't know, for some reason Christopher Reeve was not, like, holding out for, um, Keeping the character continuity uh, to the, he he was serious about it, but not so serious that he'd say, "Sorry, Superman doesn't do that." And I think he probably still wasn't in a position at that stage to flex his awe about things. Also, and this could have actually happened because Donna did actually do a lot of of the Fortress of Solitude stuff. That actually could have been shot by Donna and then taken out by Donna later because it was dumb. Uh, I think that's a case of we wrote ourselves into a corner. How do we get out of this? He takes the S off his suit and throws it. How about if he just punches Non in the face? That's far too violent for a children's film. Why just not have Non jump at him then if you can't figure out a way to fix it? Exactly. Anyway, um, then there's the teleporting. Which could be a nice symbolic way of showing him moving really, really fast. But since the Kryptonians can move really, really fast as well... Uh, Is it teleporting or replicating? (laughs) He's like holographically everywhere. He can't do that. Unless it's something to do with the the fortress. It does project holograms. I I don't know. I don't think they put that much thought into it. It's just another cool thing. and You know, let's just give Superman another power. And obviously, Superman can't do any of this. He's fictional. But at least there's some, like, if you stick to the physics you've already laid down and have him use his powers in a creative way, it's better than just making shit up. Um, erasing memories of the kiss, fighting himself, which he'd basically have had to punch himself into a car crusher, zoom to the controls, turn them on, zoom back into the car crusher, get crushed, and then, like, part of him would be standing outside it going, curse you, Superman, when he punches through. This is the same part of him that will obligingly stand still while the Clark Kent side of him throws tires over himself in a game of Kryptonian hoopla. You see, that's the thing. That If that's an, you know, an internal fight vi- visualised for us, it makes no goddamn sense, because you want to see that fight with 
out our visualization because Superman was basically hitting himself in the face. Yeah. Going, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> to add to that one, at the end of that film, th- this is one of the coolest, most awesome, memorable things he does. He crushes a lump of coal into a diamond and that was like wow and I for some reason thought that inside every lump of coal was a diamond it's like if you just open them up they're in there <laughs> um, of course that's not the case folks don't just leave your coal alone but <laughs> even if you did crush a lump of carbon into like with the enough heat and pressure it would be a rock no it would be a diamond it just yeah. would be perfect not but it wouldn't be shaped. perfectly cut like a jeweler <laughs> No, he'd be an uncut diamond. Yes, and uh, also he gives Lana this ring, and it's like, okay, Lana, here's a ring. Wow, what do you think that means? I don't know, bye. It's like he's proposing to her, but not actually. Yeah, it means in 20, 30 years' time you'll be playing my mother in a TV show of this. (laughs) Gotta say that, Annette O'Toole, handsome woman, Uh, even now. But there are two more which happen in Superman 4, which are the biggest two fingers up to physics I have ever seen in my life. Flying with the Statue of Liberty? No, that's not even it. I mean, that, yes, the, the way he was holding it, you'd need to hold it from a different position. But anyway, uh, <laughs> first off, Lex puts some protoplasm into a box with some of Superman's hair, which, by the way, was holding up a 1,000-pound weight, yet Lex was able to clip it with bolt cutters. He then puts some snippings of material in the box to grow clothes around Nuclear Man for the sake of common decency. And even his nephew says, that's not going to be enough. And he says, ah, the computer will do it. That's not how computers work. You can't put a bit of tracksuit in a bomb and expect it to be formed into a wrestler outfit. That's not even the worst. Nuclear Man is... Oh. Oh, my God. Nuclear Man is bits of Superman's DNA, bits of Lex's DNA, bits of tracksuit, and a nuclear explosion powered by Earth's yellow sun. Because as we all know, Earth's yellow sun is Superman's greatest weakness. Every time Nuclear Man blasts Superman with solar energy, he's gonna get stronger, not weaker! Power at 400% capacity. How about that? Cast your mind back to just after the um, uh, the Great Wall of China fight with Nuclear Man. They they fly back into outer space. Superman tries to grab Nuclear Man's booties. Nuclear Man gets really pissed off, turns around, and uses his ice breath to freeze Superman. Okay. Space operates at a temperature of one degree higher than absolute zero. The one degree higher is residual radiation from the Big Bang. That's minus 270 degrees Celsius, folks. That means you can literally only get one degree colder than space itself. The temperature required to freeze water, (laughs) of which there is none in space, I might add. Yeah, that isn't already frozen. Considerably (laughs) higher than absolute zero. I'll go, there is no possible way you can inhale nothing and then blow out water all over Superman and freeze him into a perfectly cut ice cube diamondy shape. It just that's that's literally I mean, he'd be frozen anyway. <sighs> but that's not the worst of it. 
That's not the worst. Oh, it pushes God. the moon so that it causes an eclipse, so that radiation dude, radio, what's his name, nuclear man, can't be in direct sunlight. But that only works if you're standing on the Earth at a certain position. If you're really close to the moon, it doesn't matter. <coughs> and also, massive, massive disasters and tidal yeah, waves. Fuck and- the tides! <laughs> you completely change the gravitational matrix of the Earth. You twat! And it's alright, he's just gonna fly back in time and sort it. But that's not the worst bit! Okay. Kitchen dude is holding Mariel Hemingway! And then he goes, oh, I can't see the sun. And so she, she sort of flops down, but she's breathing in space! <laughs> Alex, only dogs can hear you now. She's, she's, she's just, it's, it's space! She's not wearing a space suit, it's ridiculous! I don't even think dogs can hear you now. It's not even up high in the air she would have frozen and suffocated in space there is no atmosphere breathe die breathe and Superman picks her up and takes her back to Earth's atmosphere at which point she would burn up and become carbon in his hands (laughs) so he could turn her into a diamond (laughs) there you go pops oh my god it's just the Stupidest fucking moment in cinema. Anyway. Worse than blowing oil back into a tanker. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah. Superman 4, in comparison to Superman 3, is bad. <laughs> it made I just go off the high picture scale. I'm sorry about all the screaming, folks. It's just... I, I know that Superman doesn't make sense anyway, but, I mean, no one said... How come Mariel Hemingway's breathing in space? (laughs) (sighs) Shit. Anyway. I think the worst thing about this is that at the end of the film, Lex says, Superman, how did you do it? How did you beat me? And the Man of Steel has the temerity to smirk and say, high school physics, Lex. And it's some bollocks about nuclear man making quite a good nuclear reactor. To suggest that physics is one of the tools which Superman can use to beat his foes after this film is possibly the most ludicrous statement I've ever heard. It just beats out Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which suggests that being nerdy and scientist is likely to make you a social pariah, but that scientists will be able to come up with incredible ideas, such as how to feed the world with pre-wrapped cooked hamburgers which fall out of clouds from immense heights and don't destroy cars when they land and kill people. I'm all for the positive idea that kids should idolise scientists, but it seems mismatched to use the opposite of science to promote it. The countdown has begun. We risk not launching. The world is on the brink. And only one man can save us now. What a scoop! Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. But the greatest threat to Superman is Lex Luthor. You risk worldwide nuclear war for your own personal financial gain. Do you know what I can do with a single strand of Superman's hair? You can make it too pay that flies. Let's just keep your IQ a family secret, okay? Okay. <laughs> He's created a being more powerful than the Man of Steel. Well, smarter than I thought. He'll pierce his skin. 
Dance on his grave. What are you doing back in the tropics? Dude of steel. Where are you gonna get it? Is that adorable? Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Jackie Cooper, John Cryer, with Mariel Hemingway, and Margot Kidder. Clark? Clark, things aren't that bad! Clark, stop! As Lois Lane. Superman 4, his greatest adventure, the quest for peace. A year after Superman 3, Supergirl was... You've seen this, haven't you, Neil? I have. <laughs> it was released to zero fanfare or appreciation. It cost $35 million and made $14 million. And, and how yet many it was on TV every year. They did put it on TV <laughs> repeatedly. They had to make some of the money back by syndication. They made $14 million from the naive and the hopeful. This is principally because Superman 3 did so badly that Warner didn't even distribute Supergirl theatrically in the USA. They gave the privilege to TriStar. They were like, do you want this? We don't want it. <sighs> TriStar so should have said no. They should have. They should have watched the damn thing before saying yes. They were like, Supergirl? That's like twice as good as Superman! The Salkins realized they could not get any more money out of this lame duck license to them uh, that they themselves had hammered into the ground with lazy, compromised sequels, troubled by their own meddling. They sold the rights to Canon, who produced Superman for the Quest for Peace in 1987. Golan Globus... Canon films had long been proponents of the if you throw enough shit at a wall some of it's going to stick mentality of filmmaking and Superman 4 was just one of the many irons in the fire that they had in 1987 a mere footnote in a barrage of retrograde straight to video worthy garbage aimed at imaginary audiences Canon clearly held in nothing but contempt and I know that there's some things in their their backlog which you probably quite like me (laughs) I was about to say, oh, people like me who can tolerate bad films. Okay, but I've got a list here. Between 1987 and 1984, when their wretched company went down the toilet, a fitting casualty of the studio wars, no less than 40 films, 87 to 94 here, were shat onto celluloid by canon. Among them were the following. American Ninja 2, The Confrontation. Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. Seen it. Mercenary Fighters. Ooh, not seen that one. Forbidden Suspects. Not seen that it's one. It's not a checklist. Business as usual. Doing time on planet Earth. Braddock missing in action three. American Ninja three blood hunt. Crack house. American Ninja four annihilation. The fruit machine. Delta Force two the Colombian connection. Captain America that oh, one. God. Delta Force three the killing game. American samurai. Street knight. American Ninja five and American cyborg steel warrior. They also did Masters of the Universe. I didn't want to mention that one because I quite like Masters of the Universe. It's devastating to my case. It's still not a good film, but I did. And and Bloodsport and Kickboxer. And Cyborg. Anyway, in Reeves' autobiography, Still Me, he described filming Superman 4. We were also hampered by budget constraints and cutbacks in all departments. Canon Films had nearly 30 projects in the work at the time, and Superman 4 received no special consideration. For example, Connor and Rosenthal wrote a scene in which Superman lands on 42nd Street and 
and walks down the double yellow lines to the United Nations where he gives a speech. If that had been a scene in Superman 1, we would actually have shot it on 42nd Street. Dick Donner would have choreographed hundreds of pedestrians and vehicles and cut to people gawking out of office windows at the sight of Superman walking down the street like the Pied Piper. Instead, we had to shoot in an industrial park in England in the rain with about 100 extras, not a car in sight, and a dozen pigeons thrown in for atmosphere. Even if the story had been brilliant, I don't think we could ever lived up to the audience's expectations with this approach. Mark Rosenthal's DVD commentary, which you guys should listen to if you have copies of Superman 4, because it's probably it's better than the film. He's very apologetic. Pointed to this scene as an example of Canon's budget slashing. According to Rosenthal, we even director Fury begged to be able to film that sequence in New York in front of the real United Nations because everyone knew what New York and the United Nations were supposed to look like and that Milton Keynes looked nothing like it. However, I've been to Milton Keynes. It doesn't. It really does. Yeah, I can confirm that. However, Cannon refused. According to Rosenthal, they were pinching pennies every step, and it was impossible to look at the location and think of it as a United Nations, but more like a municipal auditorium, which is, according to Rosenthal, exactly what it was. So, effectively, Cannon they made the Salkins look like a cornucopia of uh, studio generosity and uh, creative freedom. At one point, the producers of this film considered using all the deleted footage and presumably shooting new footage in a fifth film, Superman Lives. But the poor box office performance of this film led to that idea being scrapped. Rosenthal commented on the DVD commentary that this showed just how out of touch Canon Films was with reality. The film performed terribly at the box office, having been as compromised as it's possible for a production to be. And despite Reeves' good intentions to set the film series in a positive real-world direction, the whole thing ended up as even more of an atrocious, poorly implemented mess than Superman 3. It cost $17 million, it made $15 million back, and the license sank into horrible shame and ignominy for 19 years until Superman Returns concluded the film series ignoring all continuity between Superman 2, all of which is now thankfully no longer canon so Superman 4 it's god awful, (laughs) about 20 minutes in I was bored it's just tedious (laughs) there's very little sense of threat, it's kind of hard for there to be any threat when it's, it's him fighting a replica of himself again with Lex Luthor's voice it's a chap named Mark Pillow. <laughs> I don't know if he was actually a professional wrestler, but they could actually have got a professional wrestler at this time. Someone who was a showman. Someone who could really... Randy Savage could have been an excellent Superman villain. He was an excellent Spider-Man villain. <laughs> That's true. Board saw is ready! Um, Neil, why did you like it? I just... Bear in mind, I like stupid films, and this is a really, really stupid film. I can trust me. This. <laughs> I, 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 I love good films, but this is stupid. Even, even I will admit that it ha- it just takes massive leaps in logic. That's and also, logic. <laughs> what was left of it has now been leaped, thoroughly leaped over. Yes, I think by this point they were they were so committed to this weird comic, not taking itself seriously vibe that it had that everyone just starts to kind of have fun because it's kind of funny because when you watch Christopher Reeves in it he's still enjoying being Superman Mm. well I don't think he's really enjoying it apparently he took John Cryer aside and said son this is going to be shit (laughs) (laughs) with good reason yeah and I think John Cryer if you watch it throughout the movie he's just like oh 
I suppose I'm getting paid for this, and it, it's, it's at least it's a movie. It seems like th- there's points when he's really like trying to be intense about it, and he's got this like really altruistic vision. The whole point of the film is that Superman says he's going to go and disarm the entire world, unilateral disarmament enforced by Superman, and throw all the nuclear missiles into the. By the way, Lex Luthor, who proclaims himself the smartest man in the world, pronounces it nuclear like six times. And then he's going to throw them all into the sun, and everyone's really happy with this. No one goes, you can't do that. When he's trying to decide that, Christopher Reeve's pretty damn good. Yeah. You know, you can see the conflict, and he's staring yeah, out I really window, shouldn't be yeah. doing this. And That in itself could have been a whole movie. Him trying to convince the United Nations, no, this is, you know, I can protect you. There's no threat that is worthwhile, these nuclear bombs. None of the whole, you know, Superman fighting a guy, that should have been the key conflict. Yeah, throwing nuclear weapons into a giant net. Just chucking them in. If there wasn't any organisation, you just threw them all in there. Hoping none of them would start leaking or explode. Well, it was in space, so you wouldn't have to worry too much about the leaking. Yeah, I suppose you could stop off. to catch your breath and all. It's just, why bother with the net? Just as they come up, throw them. Toss them towards the sun. <laughs> it was trying to be efficient, you see, because otherwise he's having to do it one at a time. His arm might get tired. But, you know, big net, all in one go, <laughs> throw the bag, and gone. <laughs> There's actually a really great comic book called Rising Stars, uh, written by J. Michael Straczynski, which Sharon and Matt are going to talk about on the upcoming Do Try This at Home, in which a character, very much like Superman, endeavours to do exactly this. Uh, Straczynski's literally taken the plot of this film and shown the real-world difficulties of trying to actually pull this off. It's brilliant, the way that that's done in the comic. In this, it's terrible. (laughs) <laughs> so, so to round this off, basically, it's a feeble film. It's so poorly edited that you can, it just jumps about all over the place. They've got, there's no one in it. Everyone in it doesn't know what the hell's going on. It doesn't. It, it just seems like it's something that's been rushed out as quick as possible, uh, and it's just. It's got one of the silliest, and I suppose it's like worth watching just to laugh at. And like you know, if you like rubbishy films. And there's plenty of listeners out there who will. It's definitely worth watching once for a giggle. But don't own it. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would say, even I'm saying, yeah, watch it once. If it was available on Netflix, I'd say, you know, to take an Netflix. hour and a half out of your day. But um, Mercifully, it was short, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. Yeah. Uh, I think Superman 3 probably does overstay its welcome. It's um, the, the bit where the woman falls into the computer, the Brainiac computer and becomes a robot is really Doctor Who, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, we're talking... 80s era Doctor Who, not yeah. modern Doctor Who. And Richard Lester, being British, would obviously be a big, you know, big fan of Doctor Who if he was, you know, going to be close to the production part. crew at that point as well. And that bit stuck with me. That bit and the bit with the um, combine harvesters. I lived uh, next to a field full of corn, so I was always like, "What if I fell asleep in the corn and a combine harvester ran over me?" The most of the movie is really, really feeble and unfunny. And again, I'd say they're both worth watching, but not worth owning. You wouldn't, you wouldn't watch them again. You would hardly ever want to watch these Superman films again. Now that we've got stuff like The Avengers, frankly, Superman Returns is all the Superman I need. I'm going to give a really controversial review next week because I like Superman Returns. And I know everyone else hates it and everyone else loves the the Donna Superman film. But there you go. I'm contrary like that. Allow me to at least attempt to convince you of its worth. I take a lot more pleasure in building up something that's maligned them from destroying something that's adored. Then again, in doing something like this, I do get to rent. Oh, and there is that bit where the bad guy plays a Superman game with missiles 
which for some reason already seems to be on this supercomputer, which, by the way, is located on the inside of a canyon with no security, no doors, no guards, no alarms, nothing. You just wander in. It's just, like, open to the elements. The leaves blow in, there's bats flying everywhere, just whatever. And we've let off how much of the world... Richard Pryor is able to control from a little sit-down computer. You know, stock markets, bank balances, traffic lights, aeroplanes, toasters. And there's that crazy scheme of his to take all of those fractions of pennies that get left over from people's paychecks and siphon them all into one account, which of course gets used in office space later, citing this film as influence, even though it didn't work in this film. Superman bullies some douchebag again, making use of his superpowers while in the form of Clark Kent. Superman gets trapped in some giant polythene bag launched at him by the computer for no reason. And there's his George S pattern routine, the giant cowboy hat, Richard Pryor on skis, Richard Pryor on a donkey, synthesizing kryptonite, drunken surly Superman meeting some floozy on the top of the Statue of Liberty who tells him to destroy an oil tanker for her, freezing a lake with his ice breath and then dropping this enormous sheet of ice on top of a burning factory and rather than crushing the factory and breaking all of the reactors all it does is turn into rain conveniently at just the right height to put out the fire. The Mr. Magoo antics with the blind guy at the beginning, the guy drowning in his car while everyone crowds around him going, I don't know what we could do. I don't Well, hopefully Superman will be along to tear off this rubber roof because we can't do that. We're just people. It's really offensively cretinous. But that stuff didn't all start at Superman 3. It started in Superman 1, when Otis and Miss Tessmarker and Gene Hackman changed the coordinates on the missile, seemingly with zero security, and JR wants to give big-titted Miss Tessmarker mouth-to-mouth. And that bit in Superman 4, where Lois wants to date Superman and Marielle Hemingway wants to date Clark, and then there's this sort of weird, like, sitcom thing where he has to keep appearing at each door, left and right. He cooks the duck with his heat vision. Nobody checks the coordinates of the missiles before they fire them off. How the hell does Lex even have control of the missiles in the first one? And that kid in Superman 2 outside Niagara Falls going, hey mom, look at this. No hands, no hands. Let the kid fall in Niagara Falls. We're all about to learn a valuable lesson here. Well, you're right. The smaller he gets, the cuter he is. I will say Christopher Reeve comes off the absolute best thing in all of these over over the four movies. He really cared about the role and what was was happening to it. So he manages to get out of here relatively clean, um, especially since you know you, you know he he wasn't happy with the way things were going and, and yet sort of stuck it out because he figured he could do more good in the front lines than just running away from it. He is, was immortalized on film. Uh, as this character in a, in a very very powerful way uh, so to the point where it, poor Brandon Ralph really had to just emulate him for his mm. uh, and the thing is to a lot of people Christopher Reeves is Superman yeah yeah so very culturally some... significant uh, uh, appearance you, you'll even know with some of the artists that draw Superman some of them still draw him very close to Christopher Reeves yeah a lot of them do who was it in All-Star Superman? Yeah. That's pretty oh, yeah. much based on him. And they did a Secret Frank Origin Quintley. recently. That's the one. Yeah. And Gary Frank in 
Superman or Secret Origin or something like that fairly recently. Yeah. That was just completely Christopher Reeve. So I think actually the, the legacy and the, uh, the the cultural impact of this is actually a lot more powerful than the films themselves, even the first. Yeah, I think it is, because the impact's there, because for the time it was, especially the first one, you believed a man could fly. I haven't mentioned this, all four films end exactly the same way. Yeah. They have him flies right around the, the earth as the sun down. comes up, <laughs> turns around, his left arm, looks to the left, looks to the right, smiles for the camera, and then carries on flying off. And it's just this wonderful little, yeah. little nod. So even Superman's 2, 3, and 4, when you watch them and you feel sort of, <sighs> you go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to admit, watching the four in fairly short succession, yeah. I, I was getting sick of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not the only it's one. constant. Yeah. It's like if you watched the Star Wars trilogy and all it played was the main theme. Yeah, yeah. With the occasional bumbling idiot theme. <laughs> Quite a lot of bumbling idiot themes. Well, that's all from us this week. And I'd like to thank my guest, Neil Taylor of Game Burst and Desert Island Gonzo. Thank you very much. And Paul Gibson of Praxis Effect and Gonzo Planet. Thank you. myself and all humanity. I've traded my birthright for a life of submission in a world that's now ruled by your enemies. There's nobody left to help them now. People of the world. Not since I... Listen carefully, my son, or we shall never speak again. If you hear me now, then you have made use of the only means left to you, the crystal source through which our communication has begun. The circle is now complete. You have made a dreadful mistake, Kalel. You did this of your own free will. In spite of all I could say to dissuade you. I, uh... Now you've returned to me for one last chance to redeem yourself. This too. Finally, I've anticipated my son. Look at me, Kalel. 
Once before, when you were small, I died while giving you a chance for life. And now, even though it will exhaust the final energy left within me, Father, no. Look at me, Kalel. The Kryptonian prophecy will be at last fulfilled. The son becomes the father. The father becomes the son. Farewell forever, Kalel. Remember me, my son. See each other, you know. I mean, all the time. But it, it just can't be. Sweet home. See you at work in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right and early, huh? Same old Clark and the same old Lois. Yep. Except, uh, maybe I won't be quite so mean to you from now on. You don't have to worry. Your secret's safe with me. I know. I know that, Lois. Well, there he goes, kid. Up, up, and away. 